I'm Aaron Broadus, and you're listening to the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. Join me as I talk shop with some of Maine's most influential and passionate fly fishing folks about our diverse fisheries that make Maine such a special place to cast a fly. Welcome to episode number six of the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast. I had the honor to sit down with James Brown to learn about life as a wading striper fly fishing guide, learn more about striper fly fishing techniques, and tackle some questions about the current striper population up and down the East Coast. There are currently a lot of frustrations about the laws of striper harvesting, and it was great to learn about what's going on from a very passionate striper advocate. James is an incredible resource, and it was great to hear a bunch of his fishy stories while we recorded at Eldridge Brothers Fly Shop in Cape Nettick, Maine. Join me as we get to know the man, the myth, the legend, James Brown. All right, buddy. So, uh, where where did you grow up? You a Mainer? Uh, I get, well, not technically, no, because I, I do believe you. What is it? You have to be uh, second generation. You need to be like your father needs to be born in Maine, and then you as well. My my dad's from from England. Still, <laughs> still an English citizen, actually. Okay. All right. Um, so I'm first generation here. Um, and I was born in uh, Exeter, New Hampshire. So I just across the board on that. Eh. So technically no, but yes, I've lived here my whole, you know, I was raised here, lived here my whole life. Yeah. Um, when, you know, uh, lived in York, right here, York or Cape Natick, um, my mom's house still here in Cape Natick, you know. Nice. Um, did, so did you go to high school in Maine? Yep. Did you go to graduated from, from York High School. Oh, right cool. Here. Yep. Um, Wildcats, right? Wildcats, Blue, yeah. blue. Maine State champ track runner, yep. Wow, good for you. Yep. What event? Uh, got the, got the champ on the, what was that, the 4 by 8 or was that a four by four? I can't remember. One of them. So you're a distance, well, a mid-distance eights guy. And, eights, four, yeah. And we did cross country too. Cool. Um, got a lot of second seconds at states, and then finally got that that one right at the end of senior year. So that was cool. Nice. Uh, with a bunch of good friends of mine on that relay, so that was fun. Awesome. Um, yeah, great. Um, great time growing up here. Um, a lot of time outside. I caught my first striper when I was six. Yep. Um, right down in Gunklet. Thing was dragging me down the beach. <laughs> good size fish was like thirty six inches. <laughs> That's really good size. Yeah, Your yeah. First fish, yeah. Yeah. So what was that? That would have been uh, nineteen eighty uh, eight or eighty. Yeah. And um, it, you know the fishery was not the greatest back then as far as numbers, but the fish that were around were mostly of a pretty decent size. Oddly enough. Yep. Um, my dad was into fishing for them. You know, this wasn't on a fly so much when, at that point. The fly fishing, the saltwater thing didn't seem to take off too much around here until the 90s, if I remember yeah. correctly. Um, did you go out with your dad a lot, though, normally when you were a kid? Yeah, we, we did plenty of other fishing. Um, did a lot of mount, mountain biking and hiking all over the Northeast, which was awesome. A lot of camping. Um, and a lot of fishing along the way. Um, we did plenty of uh, bass fishing around here, which... Um, my brother really loved it. Bass fishing and pickerel. I yep. love fishing pickerel. Is he older day. than you? Uh, that's my little brother. Yep. Uh, I have an older uh, half brother um, as well that did um, really a brother. He um, you know he would always spend the summers with us. He he uh, he went to school in um, Amherst, Mass, okay. uh, Western Mass. But um, he was not, he was never so much into fishing. Um, but my little brother was really into it. My dad was into it and. Uh, you know, I think they were actually, I heard my mom telling stories of like, 
my dad being kind of reluctant to want to bring us fishing on certain trips. I mean, you, you have kids. I get it, you, yeah. It's it's tough sometimes, and you want to do it. But well, sometimes, it's dangerous too, though. Sometimes it's dangerous, you know, obviously it's that aspect. I mean, God, we you know, we went fishing um, in one of the more well-known uh, rivers in, in the Western Mountains there when mm-hmm. uh, we were, I think I was like eight, and he, my little brother was like six, you know. That's a little early to be <laughs> and out the there. Water was, it, it was pouring the whole drive up. Yep. We had a pretty decent 4 by 4 so we were able to get out one of those roads and yep. get there and hike in and I mean, just soaking wet, fishing. And uh, What do you think was going through your dad's brain in that moment? Well, what the, he's like, just what, what am I doing? Like, But my mother, my mom had really like encouraged it a lot of times, like just just, just get through it. Like even if it's tough days like and they don't seem like they're into it, it's something that will stick with them. Yep. She had mentioned that to me when I started guiding, which I thought was, was interesting. I was like, yeah. Because there was, there was quite a few years there where I wasn't, like, big into fishing at all. Um, you know, did, did plenty with the bass and stuff. Like, we had a canoe that we took all over the place locally, and, and that was a lot of fun. And a mix of fly fishing and spin fishing. Um, I think I always enjoyed the fly fishing a little more. Um, a little more challenging, maybe? Or just, just it was different? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I always seemed to do well with it. Yeah. Like, I, it was funny, because I just, like, I liked to go, because we would usually get, like, some gas station junk food snacks and... We didn't get a lot of that growing up. My parents fed us very healthy food, and um, which is great. I, just a I treat appreciate that to this day. But um, yeah, oh yeah, we'd hit the, the even, even the cat and nine tail, the convenience store right down the street here. I'd get those like those powdered donuts and just like those, those little things in the plastic bag, whatever they are. I thought those were the best. That's awesome. <laughs> in fact, we were we were on a pond. We were trolling on a pond, trolling flies. And, uh, you know, I'm holding the rod. I'd actually put the rod down so I could keep stuffing these donuts into my face. And, of course, the thing goes off and, like, almost gets out of the boat. And my dad and my brother are getting skunked. I, I catch this nice, I think, it was, I think it was a nice brook trout, if I remember correctly. Um, <laughs> just, like, trying to eat the donut with one hand, fight the fish with one hand. Just, like, almost frustrated at the fish, you know. That's awesome. A lot of stuff like that. Happens. Well, I mean, when I get my daughter into it more, like... That's the stuff. I, I go with my father-in-law. We always bring gummies. Bring little peach yep, rings, yep. gummy worms. Like, <laughs> it's more about that stuff sometimes than the fishing. So. Yeah, you know, you, you make a day of it. Yeah. Um, it's great, too. It, you know, having... Uh, we did, we've done some local fishing with my daughter. I had her on the backpack. Right? How old is she now? She's three now. Okay. Um, but I had her on my backpack uh, out on the rock striker fishing at, like, I think she was, what, eight, eight months old when I started there, seven months old when I started doing cool. that. You know, that, so, and got to take, like, a day trip down to the Cape at one point with her, and, um, and my, my wife and I actually married, but we've been together for a long time. <laughs> yep. And, uh, we, um, got to go alley fishing down on the Cape for a day. It, it was, it was a, an adventure, you know, in every respect. So it's, and it's, the fishing is a great part of that, too, and it, like, I'm one of these guys when people talk about it, it's like, oh, it's not about catching the fish. Uh, if... For me, if it's not about catching the fish, I don't bother packing the fishing gear. <laughs> yeah, right? I mean, you still have a reason you want to be out there. Yeah, and there's, it's about all of it. It's mm-hmm. about hanging with your friends or your family, checking out beautiful place, getting to enjoy nature, be yeah. outside. and and um, But it is very much about catching the fish, oh, too. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, but the nice thing about striper fishing, you know, you bring, you bring your wife out there, you bring your daughter out there. Yep. They can like hang on the beach and stuff, as opposed oh, to absolutely. you go up north, they're getting chewed by black flies, and well, <laughs> not always know, a place you can bring them, so to say. Yeah, there's definitely challenges on the on the beach side of things too. Um, true. I mean, one of my favorite beaches, the, the the greenheads come out bad. Those bugs are vicious. Yeah. 
They, if you're not from New England, you may not know what those are, but... They look like a housefly with a green, metallic-y head, and they, they... It feels like getting shot with a pellet gun, if that's ever happened to you. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty yeah. much. They bite really hard. <laughs> and they're aggressive, and they'll keep coming at you. That's right. That's <laughs> and right. you can get out over the water, and they'll keep coming at you. you. Sometimes they'll attack us when we're surfing. You can dive right in the water, they'll keep coming at no you. No kidding. Oh, yeah. Um, Did you surf growing up? I started surfing... Um, uh, when did I start surfing? Right at the end of middle school. Yep. And um, I got my first job scooping ice cream at a local spot with one of my good friends. And um, it was great Great growing up here in, in York. Um, a lot of good friends and just a real good place to be. I thought the schools were great. I, I enjoyed school and teachers. And just, yeah. Just, I don't know, just a good scene. It's a good, good little community here. Yeah. Uh, you know, crazy busy in the summer, too. It's slow in the winter, but it's one of the busier tourist towns in Maine. Yep. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of great summer people, too, though. That You know, season. it's not like they're tourists coming in for a day or two, which a lot of them are great as well, but, you know, people that have a, a house here or rent a house here for the season. And, sure. Um, you get to know them well, too. Well, Route 1's a ghost town right now. Driving up and down, it's easy. But oh, yeah, if you no come way. back in July, forget it. It's a parking lot. It's, yeah, yeah. It's definitely. packed. It's but, crazy. Yep, started surfing. Um, loved surfing. I don't... I still call myself a surfer, but that uh, some of my friends have started to debate that with me. <laughs> yeah. Do you still go out at all? I haven't, I haven't been out... Uh, I haven't been out in... 18 months right now okay and it's you know it's like spotty when i'll go and it's just so hard to line up um i and i hope to get back into it more as my daughter gets a little bit older as well um to expose her to that and get going i also got a little freaked out this year there was great white swimming through kittery so yeah right be on the beach too you know yep. so and they've always been around the sharks there have always been here but the number of great whites in the northeast has absolutely spiraled out of control and yep. they're just coming in really close and it's, are they here in the winter? Um, or do they do they come back up the coast? Like I don't even know. I'm not. I don't. I doubt it. Because the I, seals, I the seals probably stay here. They're here for the seals, really, right? That's they're really here for the seals. Yeah, the seals move around too. So I'm not sure if they. A lot of the, in the Northeast, a lot of things are still here in the winter, but they just go out offshore like a ways offshore where there's warmer water or they, they you know a great white's not a warm water fish but it, it's going to go it may go out closer to that warm water because it's going to be more bait rich yeah and so you got the gulf stream out there yeah the fall on the food it makes sense it, 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 yeah you got it's wild out there the reason i ask is because a lot of people they go they actually surf here in the winters right the winter here is the better, by far, the better time to surf. Or really, I mean, fall through through the spring. Yeah. You know, hurricane season is the, is is great, and sometimes that's that coincides with with warm weather and warm water, which is awesome. Of course. That's great <laughs> days on some really big surf. You know, New England has awesome surf in Maine. We have as much coastline in Maine as the rest of the East Coast. Um, it's just snakes along. Yep. <laughs> and it's yep. crazy. That's so a cool fact. A lot of cool structure. And um, it's just inconsistent. The North Atlantic is inconsistent for producing surf that comes in with winds aligning with it to make good surf. Sure. But when it's good, it's great. And nice. it's we have a good community of surfers here, too. I, I, I haven't spent much time doing it or with them lately, but I uh, did it for a long time. and yep. hope to get back into it at some point. And I still see all these guys all the time because we're fishing right next to them. Uh, surf spots are good fishing spots. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, there you go. This is a little tip for people, right? <laughs> yeah, the, the structure, the general structure of a good surf spot tends to create a good fishing spot. 
please don't go fishing while the surf's good and there's a bunch of surfers there. It's not a good idea. <laughs> no. there, you can get right off to the edge of where all the surfers are and safely fish and still have good fishing without messing with them. Good. Little, little PSA there. <laughs> yes, please. That's the surf awesome. The surf scene has become uh, amazingly crowded. And uh, if you, you see people dangerous. often fishing right near surfers. Yeah, oh, I had, I had, um, in my younger days, when I was surfing, had some choice words with some fishermen who were just being jerks. Yeah, you don't want to get, you don't want to get hooked up. <laughs> I there. may have cut a few oh, lines. Geez. Good for you. <laughs> I don't blame you. I got, yeah, I always try to approach situations like that uh, politely. Yep. And 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 try to resolve things as level-headed as possible, but yep. um, sometimes with. People coming from certain major metro areas that have a different mentality, they're great people, but it evolves quickly, and then I, I flip that switch, and it's over real fast. Yep. You turn back into 18-year-old James, where you just like, yeah. say what you're going to say, Not do what you're going to do. I got too much on the line to get into it with people mm, these days. I but, hear you. Um, That's part of growing older. You just, it sure is. You just kind of let things go. And, yeah, yeah. Um, do you uh, do you get to get out fishing yourself during, during the season? I know you guide a lot, but do you get to get out and actually do some oh, yeah. fishing for yourself? Abs- absolutely. And I, I think that as, especially with the shore guiding gig that I run, I think that it's really important to, to force yourself to continue getting out and fishing on your own. I see a lot when I'm guiding, so guiding time is, you know, you talk, people talk about scouting time or whatever, I don't really do that, but like while I'm guiding, I'm making notes and judgments for the next day and a couple days after based on what we're seeing. Sure. So, um, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have excellent vision. So I see a lot. Good for you. <laughs> and, uh, a lot of I've people got, have a hard time seeing. They do. And I have a, an awesome selection of glasses as well that, um, just, and I've learned to use those to my advantage in different conditions sure. to, to see a lot. So they don't just make all those to, to sell all kinds exactly. of different glasses and make a lot of money. Exactly. They actually do work. They do work. Cool. 100%. I'm fortunate to... It's good to know. <laughs> yeah. I have a good friend who works for a major glasses company, and I'm able to get some really cool stuff to test out through him. He's nice. awesome guy. And um, the... Uh, oh, I lost my train of thought. We're just yeah. talking about you getting out fishing on your yeah, own. Yeah, no, I and I love to. I love to fish. I got, I love getting tight to fish. Sure. <laughs> I love casting. Yeah. So I fish, I fish most days. Nice. A lot of days are, uh, you know, four or six hour trip and we're starting at five in the morning or earlier and I'm done before I have to, you know, I have a busy life too. So I got a, a lot of things to maintain, but if I can keep my schedule running smooth, I'll, a lot of days I'll, uh, I'll end the trip and I won't even, I'll just go right to fishing. Yep. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I'll have people that were cha- having a challenging time that day, um, getting the job done really you know whether they're new anglers or the tricky casting conditions or whatever you know there's a lot of things going on out there but sometimes i put a lot of pressure on myself to 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 get people on fish and to have them succeed on it right it's two different things but um you know sometimes i'll get done one of these days and it just never came together and i'll go right back down there and as quickly as possible to catch the tide if i can and fish just yep. to be like, okay, what was going on here? Like, yeah, it's a learning moment for you, and yeah, more like, so than you just leisurely going out fishing. And yeah, cool. Usually, I go down and catch a fish and two casts, and I'm like, all right, the, okay, like the technique's sound. Right. <laughs> like I wasn't off my game. Right. Like we just 
you know, whether I wasn't instructing them right or they just weren't practiced enough or sure. the conditions were just not a match for their skill set, you know. But. Do you find that hard when you guide people who have not done a lot of ocean fishing, like in terms of, because you, you mostly oh, yeah. do fly fishing, right? Uh, pretty I, much all fly fishing. I do offer spin, tri- I'm really trying to get away from spin trips at all because fly fishing is my passion, yeah. but with a family to support and a house, you know, and all these bills and stuff, like, it's, sure. I, I spent a lot of time building up to this business and really being able to offer as much as I could. And it's been financial hardship to, to get there. Yep. Um, and luckily I have my awesome wife who's really supported it a lot through the kind of transition of getting busy with it. Yep. Do you, so do you um, find when people are new though to, yes. to casting like, well, um, new to salt specifically, sp- salt specifically. Yeah. Set. Number one challenge of a striker guide is even an awesome freshwater angler. Um, most likely will not have a strip set. You know, some of the, you're starting to see some more like uh, musky pike kind of guys from the Midwest and stuff that have gotten used to pretty heavy strip sets on these big muskies they're fishing. Sure. Um, if people and if people don't know what strip set is, can you explain what that is? So the strip set. Um, if you ever watched anybody trout fishing, or if you've trout fished, uh, or most freshwater fish for that matter, when you when you get a taker and eat, you pull up on the rod swiftly. Yeah. And that's called a, a set. That's a hook set. Sure. For fresh water. That's what you do. Um, we call that a trout set in the saltwater world. And when you want a, a strip set is where you're not lifting the rod really at all. You, you're just pulling as hard as you can on the line. And I like to use my rod hand as well. So one thing that's hard to get a lot of people to do is hold their hand out away from their body, their rod hand away from their body while they're stripping. Um, the freshwater... For whatever, maybe it's just relaxing your arm. Yeah, it's relaxing your arm and Most tight. people tend to butt it right into their into their belt or just like sure. up against their body or close. But if you hold that rod hand out while you're stripping, if a fish eats at the end of your strip where your your line hand is like at your back almost, you have nowhere else to go with the line hand. You still have to get that strip set, so you can pinch the line with your rod hand and just pull straight back on the rod. Oh, with your rod hand, so that's yeah. why your arms extended out. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, um, a lot of those takes will actually come. It's it's <laughs> not that you're intentionally pausing; it's just that you're right at the end of your strip, so the thing stops for the briefest second. Striper sees it, eats, yep. and you still got to get that set. So if you had to bring your your line hand back up and set, you may lose that fish. Yep. The quick, the quicker the strip set, the better with the stripers. They'll spit the fly. Really so I bet fast. during a day of guiding, you're telling people to keep your arm up straight. Oh yeah, keep your arm I, up straight. It's like a constant kind of thing for because it's hard when you're learning something new and you're fishing and you're you're with a guide like to just remember those little things. But yeah, and to, so again, even with an experienced freshwater angler, a lot of the time the max distance they may have been casting prior, even if they've been doing it five, ten years, might have been thirty feet. Mm-hmm. And like thirty feet's a lot of times out in striper land, thirty feet's like a Kind of a minimum. Right. So, and you're throwing in a big heavy rod, yep. probably a big heavy fly, maybe a sinking shooting line, um, probably some wind, yep. probably some stuff up in our back casts. <laughs> Are you teaching people to haul on their first day, or is that, that that's so probably like, hard to do first day, There's though. so many things that you may encounter with uh, somebody coming into the salt that I try not to overload somebody, because, I mean... They're like, what am I gonna just like? Hey, you gotta cast further. You gotta do this. You gotta strip. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta, it's easy to say those things. Stripping basket. You gotta get all that line in the basket. Like, just so much different stuff. So, um, I try not to overload them at all. And it's a lot of it's talking to people ahead of time so that I can really try to judge what their skill set is and what they're hoping to get out of it. Because yep. if I know that they're only gonna be like, this <laughs> sounds terrible. 
nobody should take offense to this, but if somebody tells me they can cast 30 feet, I hear 20. Right. And it goes right yeah. down the line. So you should like, assume, though. Yeah. Assume <laughs> that assume. they're exaggerating a little bit. <laughs> well, no. even if they aren't, even if they're honestly casting that far with the freshwater gear, it may just not, that might not be the situation for saltwater yep. gear. And it goes both ways. And sometimes I'm super impressed with people. Uh, but there's a lot of newer fly anglers these days, and um, switching over to these big setups again, all these challenges can be tricky, so... I try to get a really good idea. If I know somebody's casting super short, it's going to be tough. Or maybe they have like shoulder problems, something like that. You know, I'm going to try to start the day in a spot where we don't need to cast far. Because that right. just, I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. And um, for anybody looking to get into the saltwater game, don't be overwhelmed by the size of the ocean and the water that you're dealing with. Because yeah. a lot of things are right in front of you. Um, I've, I've, only, I've been striper fishing less than 10 times in my life. And I have a nine-weight rod. Yeah. And I have a sink tip line. And I usually tie on like four feet of like, I don't know, 10 pound mono or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then I do um, an Orvis knot or whatever you call it there. Where you, what do you call that? Like a loop knot? There's a, uh, I use what's called a non-slip mono loop. Yes, that's, yes, okay. Yeah. Um, and lighter tippets. Yeah. So my experience, just self-taught, just going out there, um, I've listened to people like, oh, this is the best time to go like after the, after the low tide or whatever. Some people say that's the best time. There's. Because food's coming back in. There's no wrong tide. Interesting. And that's one thing. Um, and you'll hear, you'll hear preferences all over the place. And there's a lot of ways to read the tide. The tide's a confusing thing with how it plays into this fishery. Um, and I think the worst thing you can do, especially as a shore angler in Maine, targeting stripers on the flat, is get dead set in a tide. Okay. It's you're pigeonholing yourself yeah. right away, and yeah. and it's tricky. It's a tricky balance. I'm on the water so much that I can get tuned into the prime tide, and that's a big part of my job. Um, yeah, I mean, I, do you do that with clients? Like, listen, we'll get, we're gonna go at four p.m. today because we'll totally shift the yeah. Our our start times and our, our trip plans are very much based around the tide. It has to be. It not only dictates the fish it, the fishing in a lot of ways but it dictates your access massively sure so it's up to a 14 foot tide here and it's a constantly changing landscape yeah so well that's what I'm, so that was my point is i've only been like 10 times yeah and i've i've gotten like caught out there oh for new like anglers fishy outgoing fishy outgoing fishy outgoing <laughs> right i i swear by this and i'll even do it on i'll do it on guiding days where i have uh, you know i have taken people out up to like uh, 90 years old, yep. actually. So um, that guy was in great health, and he was awesome, too, a French-Canadian guy. And we had a great day. Um, didn't catch anything big, <laughs> just a lot of schoolies, but it was, it was fun. Big, sure. had a big crowd. Big but you were crowd. nervous knowing that he's that old. I wasn't, I mean, actually. I don't know why. I've been more nervous with, like, jacked-up 20-year-olds before, honestly. Like, but, uh <laughs> Well, he must have presented himself well, then. He did, and, and, and we had discussed... Well, the, the, the communication was tricky to the... Uh, him speaking French mostly and my French not being good at all and or non-existent and um so the, the, but I got the idea I got the idea before the trip so I sure. set it up accordingly and we had just a super mellow day and a very easy environment to navigate yeah so, yeah yeah I'm not gonna take people like that on the ledgy rocks with six foot surf coming in sure you know and it's um I f see I feel like I've been trout fishing for 15 years and I've only started striped fishing like the last two and just leisurely with nobody else kind of on my own just trying to kind of learn it and just reading forums or whatever but yeah. my point is i get out there and i i do feel intimidated and i do feel like 
my casting just sucks and it's not like I'm not casting 30 feet because some of that is that that weighted line is a lot easier to throw but I mean my yeah. arm's a lot more tired than it is after a day of you may, you may need to so. look into cleaning up your casting and don't take this the wrong way there's a lot like oh I, I need to there's not that much yeah <laughs> I didn't learn how to properly cast until I was uh oh how old was I I think it was like 2007 yep and so do you double haul almost every every time I, when you're casting Oh, I yeah, I, I haul all over the place. Like I, I haul my, my favorite freshwater rod is a is a set was it seven foot I think seven and a half foot, uh, three weight. Mm -hmm. It's a it's a Scott A three, which is one of their older rods, and um, pretty noodly. I use that thing on big water for throwing dries <laughs> for big fish. I've caught twenty something inch salmon. And you're on double that hauling thing. with it. I'm double hauling with it. It's That's a very awesome. short little haul, but yep. double hauling isn't. Once you get used to double hauling, it's not necessarily, you, you're not using it to generate line speed or anything like that all the time. You're using it to control your loop and shorten the movement of your, of your, your hand and your rod yeah. and just pack a little extra load into the thing by using that haul. So I literally just started to learn how to haul that was this past year and that's, because I, I haven't needed it, you know, you just yeah. don't really need it on some of these rivers that I fish. But and, once you learn it, you're going to notice that you'll oh, use it so different. everywhere. Yeah. And you're, you'll... I don't know if you've started doing like the two-handed casts with one-handed rod, but hauling in that is huge too. Yeah, um, like a one, like they call it like one-handed spay one -handed cast spay kind of. Right? Or, yeah, you hear all kinds of terms for it. There's multiple different snap T. Yeah, it's more of a, like a snap T cast on a yeah. single-handed rod. Yeah. Is what it ends up being. Well, Jim Jim keeps explaining it to me in the shop, and I'm like, uh huh, uh huh. But until I get on the water and like. Try it, or somebody instructs me. It's, yeah. it's if I'm throwing a nymph rig, if I'm nymphing, yeah, um, what really whether uh, under indicator bobber or not, um, I'm almost always fishing. I almost, just overhand casting is almost irrelevant. With sure, that. but yeah. you can shoot awesome casts with really cool loops and good control, and it's you're not by no means are you just chucking weight, you know, illegal style. Either. Right. it's a cool cast. Yeah, and it's clean. Yeah. Yeah, you don't get I got to put it in my toolbox cuz it, it it's it sounds more it sounds efficient, it sounds like yeah. it's give you a little more distance, a little more control, which yeah, are two absolutely. things that, that help a lot. So. Yeah. All right, so you, so Sorry, I get distracted. That's here. all right. Um <laughs> how long have you been guiding for? I have this is uh this, um this will be my 6th year doing that full time. Okay. Yep. And you for people who don't know, you're primarily a wade a weight fisherman, 100%, right? 100%. Okay, so no boat I, at all. No, I don't have a captain's license. Um, I don't have the uh, the Coast Guard six-pack license that yep. will uh, authorize me to guide on a boat in the salt water. Um, so I'm 100% shore-based for yep. now. Yeah. I'm. Um, is that a in Maine, is that a different endorsement, or is, so is it just the regular freshwater? No, I'm a registered Maine guide with the, uh, what's it called, the Tidewater Fishing. Gotcha. So I'm actually not licensed to guide in freshwater in, in Maine either. Interesting. Um, I, I'll be getting that license shortly so that I can expand my season a little bit. Sure. You know, um... Yeah, because striper season's not super long here. I mean... No, well, my guiding season, I try to start running May 15th or May 20th, the weather and fish dependent, and then it's going to run usually till the end of September, um, maybe into October, maybe sure. not too far into September. So, um, it's a short season. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For um, sure. You gotta you gotta take advantage of every day you can yep. uh, doing this gig, and I love the shore gig too. Um, I'm really comfortable with it. I we have great 
days. We do. <laughs> we got a lot of great boat guides around here, um, but we actually have, like I'm pretty good friends with quite a quite a few of them, and um, we outfish them quite a few days. That's pretty. <laughs> I'm cool. pretty proud of that. That's so. pretty cool. Well, you you have a heck of a reputation of just being this, you know, waiting guy that just. Because a lot of do-it-yourselfers out there or people who are new to it, they don't have boats. Like, they go wade, and yeah. I think they see some of the fish you're catching or some of the fish that your clients are catching, and they're just like, man, how does he do it? Or, like, they're just, you're oh, kind of revered. i all kinds so. of weird stuff. That's it, nice. <laughs> you wouldn't believe what I've been accused yeah, of. That's fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, um, where do you typically guide from in Maine? Like, what, what towns are you out of? You don't give away spots uh, or no, anything. No, no, I, um, I live in Kittery. Um, and I guide from Kittery, which uh, people that aren't familiar with Maine, Kittery is the border town with New Hampshire, uh, yep. right on the Piscataqua River, which is just a phenomenal system. Awesome to have. I literally have that in my backyard, and so that's that's pretty awesome. And um, I run as far up as um, South Portland. Okay. Um, I I I haven't. I've only actually done a handful of trips in that area. I used to, I've lived in a bunch of different spots on the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, I was at USM for a little bit and lived uh, in Scarborough, right on Higgins Beach. Um, so very familiar with that area. I spent um, spent almost a year on Old Orchard Beach. Yep. Um, yep. When I moved back up here from Bo- a little stint down in Boston, and um, so and I've just traveled. You know, when you especially the surfing game. Like, it's very, like, normal if, like, we get a swell to have to drive quite a ways to get it in a place that lines up with the wind and the tide, right, so that you can have some fun waves. Yep. And so, um, my, my little brother's a phenomenal surfer, uh, ran this surf shop, um, Liquid Dreams, in, a, in Gunkwit, and um, York, he was one of the managers there for a while. Um, awesome surf shop, great guys, definitely recommend it. Um, but the, um... He really drove a lot of, like, pushed us, like, getting around a lot more. So we got to explore a lot of places yeah. for quite a few years. <clears throat> now, do you treat your that. fishing business that same way? Or are you kind of like, yeah, I think it's going to be better up towards, you know, Casco Bay no, so this time of month? I think whatever. that's one unique thing that I offer. Number one, I've got, I've obsessively fished this range for, for a long time now. Um, like, just, even before I really thought about becoming a guide, I just, was just obsessed with it. I don't know. I get obsessed with things sometimes. And, uh, we, all, we all do. Yeah, we do. And the, the surfing slowly transi- transitioned into more of the fishing, mostly just getting tied down with, like, you know, work. And just it, surfing's hard to line up. Fishing's easier to line up. You can basically, you can go fishing most days on our coastline. Sure. And if the surf's too big... You can go surfing, so... Right, there you go. It's the best of both worlds, then. <laughs> that's about... That's, like, one of the only things that's going to shut you down. Yep. Um, unless, even then, if the tide's right and there's good action up in the backwaters, up in the rivers and the, the marshes and estuaries and all that stuff, yep. um, then you can play that card really well, too, but... Do you ever... Uh, do you ever reschedule with clients? Like, fish just aren't really here yet? Like, May... You know, like, May, you don't know in, exactly when you're going to start. Yeah, in May, definitely. And I warn all of them, too. Yep. I, I prepare them well ahead of time, you know... Uh, um, when we're getting deposits squared away and we get my schedule ironed out, um, those those May dates before really, bef- it's usually there's like a tide. It, it kind of falls into a tide. Nobody knows why the stripers come here. You'll find people who tell you they do, but they they're, they're full of it. Yep. Um, there's nobody has it ironed out, and there's a like it could be the light. You know, there's the amount of daylight. It could be what triggers their movement. It could be water temperatures. 
Um, yeah, I mean, you start to get your first long days of the year in May. Yeah, generally. it could just... It, there's, I, I don't think it's any one thing. A lot of people try to really dial it into one of these kind of factors. Yeah. But I think that there's just a, a, a big pile of elements that kind of combine into kicking them off. They're animals. You know, think about how illogical we are with a lot of stuff. Right. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so maybe, like, and, and, and you see a variance even among the stripers in the different populations, too. Right. A lot of the stripers that dominate the East Coast all come from the Chesapeake Bay or very nearby, and, um, and there's a secondary population out of the Hudson, and there's other random small little pockets here and there, yep. but um, it's mostly that those Chesapeake fish. But they come in waves, too. It's not like they all get here at once. Right. You see big schools of it's fish. just different schools that come in different Yeah, and they usually congregate in pretty similar sizes. Yep. Um, now, do we, do we get Albies up here? No. They don't come no, this far, huh? shame. They stop kind of Cape Cod, New Hampshire. <laughs> they don't even go on the north side of the Cape. They're like wow. they don't even go to the outer beaches on the Cape so much. Yep. Um, the south side of the Cape is really the the north side of their deal. We do occasionally get Benito, and and Albies have been caught in the Gulf of Maine, yep. even in some from shore occasionally. This is a, a lost fish for yep. all accounts. Now you go down, you go down and fish every year for them, don't you? I usually see a yeah. post something yeah. like Octoberish somewhere around there. Um, well, September, September, or even okay. August. Um, nice. They're again. They're different. They're real funny. They call them funny fish, and their their migration patterns are even harder to predict yep. than, than stripers. So um, yeah, my season. If you want to go through my season with how the fish line up through it, it's um, it starts off in April with tiny little wild named brook trout. Um, pretty locally, I don't go far. I got a lot of spots dialed in for that. And, sure. You know, we're talking like. Like a, like that six inches probably your yeah. average. Are these native or are they yeah. stocked? No, natives? these are native wild fish. Cool. I mean, Maine has a lot of them that people wouldn't recognize in really like obvious places too. Uh, I love fishing for them. Um, so that's how the year starts. The tiny little, you know, the ten inches good. We do yeah. have some saltier ones, some that run out to the ocean, and they're you know ten or twelve inches maybe, and cool. they're interesting. They get really silvery and. Like chromed out, washed out. Yeah, they don't get as, you know with the with the salter brookies that I find they don't get as chromed out as like a steelhead or a sea run a fresh sea run brown trout which we do have as well, but they get like it's kind of disappointing compared to a, a, the regular colors of a brookie almost because they get just kind of washed out like they're bright too some of them some of them are brighter than yeah. others but it's more of like a just I, I, like a, I don't know it's it's not the like the brilliance of some other sea run fish and. And freshwater brook trout are so, you know. Yeah. So, so it's, it's kind of disappointing when you yeah. catch one how they look. You're like, oh, yeah. Because they're so. That's what they're supposed to be. And, and then, you know, I think that uh, yeah, a, a pre spawn brook trout is about as cool looking a, a freshwater fish as. They really are. They're, they're, they're gorgeous. Yeah. It's one of the cool things. Yeah. People get, love obviously. fishing for them in yeah, the fall. You get, you get to experience a lot more of that than I do these yeah, days. Yeah, but you're striper <laughs> fishing, and, and stripers are so cool in their own right, man. People yeah. have really started to adopt it. And I. The more, you know, I live in Saco, so the more I go to the beach or the more I fish and stuff, I just see a ton of fly anglers out there now, too. Oh, yeah. It's, more than before. It's taken off. Well, it's a, it's a second wave, really. Okay. Or even a third wave, really. Okay. Uh, like, so it used to be big, what, 90s? Yeah, it took really, it, it was, it took off. And it wasn't, I, I know, you know, I'm not, I'm not a historian. I, I know it was around uh, well before that, but at least... Well, probably just from, from my life, you know, I saw it take off in the 90s. Yep. I saw my dad switch over from a lot of spin and, and bait fishing to um, just obsessive fly angling. Cool. And it was cool then, too. They were catching monsters. I mean, 
people look at what I'm a lot of people getting into it now look at what I'm doing and like wow you're killing it I've I've caught a, I've caught a lot of big stripers yeah man a lot you, more than a lot more than I share how, how are you taking those pic, how are you taking those pictures by yourself too it looks like you're holding a young child in your arms there I mean it's, they're <laughs> or, or a big child I'm terrible at photos because I I don't I could get way better I'm not like bad at taking photos yeah I I I give myself one shot. And it usually doesn't come out well yeah. with these big fish. Well, I mean, listen, I, like, they're huge. Like, how are you so, How are you starting a camera and getting them in your arms, okay, basically? Yeah, we'll address this. Uh, don't, let me come back to the other stuff there. With, we'll, we'll come back to that later. Explosion in we the will. 90s. But, we um, will. yeah, I, I have not taken a lot of photos of a lot of my biggest fish. Sure. Because uh, so, physically, how can you? Well, I, yeah, if I had a long fight. And I landed it in a bad place to yeah. manage the situation. Yeah. I just you, let it go. You want to get him back out there. I don't even yeah. take a yeah. picture. It's not worth the risk. I, I just let it go. I want to. I want to catch it again. I want my, yeah. one of my guys to catch it. You For know what sure. I mean? Like yeah. I. Yeah. yeah. So I and I care a lot. I see a lot of bad things happening these days, and it's it's it, it's so hard to address too because you look at my Instagram, my website, you're gonna see me hero posing with a bunch of fish. Right, mm-hmm. but look closely because you're gonna notice they're all dripping, right? Right. Because <laughs> I just really pulled them out of the water. Sure. Um, the way I do it is I. A lot of times I know when I'm getting into big fish, and I'll set up my camera on a tripod behind me, my phone, and I have a little Bluetooth thing that I can hit record on. Cool. And it's just sitting there, and nice. I know where I'm gonna land. If I, I might have a hundred foot stretch that I'm fishing, but yeah. I know where I'm gonna land. So fish. you're super prepared. You're not super just prepared. like trying yeah. to handle this fish, get your phone out, set it up on a rock, point at. Sometimes you it, it goes down smooth. Maybe I land it, and there's a sweet tide pool right there. I just pull in. I'm sure. holding the fish. I never take it out of the water. I get the camera. You know, a lot of the better fish I've caught, I have photos of just you know me lipping it in a tide pool. Yeah. It actually never came out of the water. Um, and then, but you know. It's a, it's, a, it's a challenge because I want to promote my business at this point, too. And I, it just flat out works. You post it, I mean, you put these pictures of big fish up and people, like, well, you'll they get take 20 notice. emails, you know, of people right. looking for a trip. And right. I'll tell them right away, hey, yeah, I caught that fish. I've been doing this a long time. Right. Like, no guarantees. You're probably not going to catch that fish. Right. And yeah. I just want to let you know that right away. Like, I'm not trying to promote any BS with what I'm doing out there. And, and, and it's, I've been accused of stuff with the, with the hero photos, like, you're not, you know, the keeping wet movement, you're not keeping it wet. It's wet, it's dripping, there's water coming out of its gills. Yeah, okay? I mean, how long, how long should you keep one out of the water for if you, if you were? Like, 20 I, seconds, max? I try to, I mean, yeah, that, that would be a long time for me. I, cool. And there's situations where it goes past that, there's situations where a fish is going to be out of the water for, yeah. you know, close to a minute due to safety. Sometimes, yeah. and I'm not allowed to about to let myself or one of my sports get killed for a fish. I'll kill the fish before I let us really get into a bad place for it. Yeah. So there's a lot to consider. I've also broken off fish in places where I just it was not going to go down well. Yeah, you're talking about you're on ship. rocks and big waves and stuff or something, right? You just We're just some dock. sketchy stuff. Like sure. some weird like there's it's going to wrap some it's like or it's already started to wrap something. Mm-hmm. Like you know I've broken off fish that were huge <laughs> for these kind of situations. Sure. But it's just not worth it. So, yeah. you know, it's... It, how, sh- how should people... Just, oh, and, a piece, and, how should people handle the stripers when they get them? Quickly. Yeah, and but so, like physically, like... like put the, well, you know, you thumb, big, and thumb it, in their mouth? Well, or? that... Crown, 
always get the fish, but I always lift the fish. Well, sometimes I, I've actually landed some really big fish by the tail too. I mean, mm -hmm. if you can stop the propulsion, it's not. Well, sometimes it's sometimes it's easier to describe its tail with these big fish than it is to try and get its lip or uh, leader it, which is always leadering is a very dicey move. We're fishing light tip it a lot. It's usually like fifteen. 15 pounds, right. which in saltwater land is light. So, uh, a lot of uh, tail, plenty of fish. Um, on the rocks, sometimes you just need to land them using the surf to put them up onto a rock and let the surf wash back out and just they sleep, they set down. It's tricky with big fish. You always got to support them. Uh, you never want to just straight lip one up. And sometimes that ends up having to happen too. And you feel bad about it, but you just try to do it as carefully right. and quickly as possible. But definitely no gills. No gills, don't gill no them. gills, no. don't touch their gills. There are ways to move around their gill plates and grab in some of those places, but when you lip them, it calms them down. Mm -hmm. They chill right out. Kind like, of paralyzes them, not, 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 not really, fully, but, but just it like, helps in a lot of ways. Down. I don't like lipping tools on them. I hate boga grips on, on bass. They, mm -hmm. I think they do a lot of damage, and it puts a single point of pressure, especially if you weigh them on one. Mm -hmm. And I've done, I'm guilty of having done that before for friends on you know their biggest bass of their life. And, sure. Uh, I do as much as I can to mitigate any damage to these fish. I think catch and release mortality among wreck anglers is right out of control. We can get into that later. Yeah. yeah. But quickly, uh, one thing with the keep them wet movement that gets me a little bit is is... I almost think it encourages some people to handle the fish for a lot longer than they should. I think that, number one, landing the fish quickly is, is of the utmost importance. And I've been accused of under-gunning myself on gear. A lot of people are giving me flack on the eight weight thing because I'm mostly Yeah, well, you weights. said you're fishing 10, 15 pound test. No, not 10, well, not 10. Not 10, okay. So <laughs> 15, or, 15 or up to 20. But gotcha. I'll tell you what, you can pull really hard. On, on 15 pound that's rigged up well and fresh and clean. Yep. You can pull real hard on that. Right. Because um, it's like that way in trout world, right, where people say, oh, you're using 7X tippet, like you're just wearing the fish out too much of that because you want to catch it on like gear and have a hard fight, right? It's like people get accused of that. So that's what you're talking about in the striper world. And 7X, right? to tell you the truth, I, I won't fish 7X tippet. But if you play your cards right with it, you can still you can still land a fish quickly. And if the thing is, just I get, can't even handle seven and seven. I feel like it coils up on me and stuff. It's yeah, just it's so thin. I fish plenty of six at Stippet, but sure. you can land fish really fast on that. If again, you just got to get after it. Yeah. Like I don't care about my flies, and the way my stuff's rigged up, I pretty much know that the knot's going to break if it breaks is at the fly. Yeah. And the fly's going to rust out. I always use appropriate hooks for where I'm fishing, and I'll break a fish off. You know what I mean? If or I'll get it in quick. Most of these big big bass I've landed from shore. Like, a long fight is five minutes. Yep. And people will say, oh, what, are you fighting that for 20 minutes? They're, no. No. You let it... <laughs> I'm not going to give too much away, but you hook the thing, let it run. When it starts to slow down, you turn it around real quick. You just put, and the, you just put, put the reel the, to put, it. Put it to it. Yeah. Trust your rigging. Yeah, I think some people gear. are kind of... I wouldn't say lazy, but they're kind of just like, all right, we'll just reel it in nice and slow. But you're like, you're cranking down I'll on that thing. that thing. In. I've caught a lot of big fish in multiple species and different gear. And you just start to realize how hard you can pull. Yep. When you're, when you're really... When, when everything's set up right. Yep. When all your rigging's right the whole way through and, and right down to your hook choice so that you have a good purchase on that thing. And it's, you yep. know, it's not... Sometimes you hook these fish and it goes down right with the set and your gear and you're just like, other than it wrapping a lobster pot or going straight into some sharp ass rocks, excuse me. It's all right. <laughs> it's, um, you know it's coming in. Sure. 
And that, that's a that's an awesome feeling because that's a fun fight and you just go right to it and you get it done. That's right. And you know that the fish is... Like a lot of these fish, the reason I have such crappy photos is because like that 10 seconds that I have them out of the water, they're so hot still that they're just like thrashing on me and they're yeah. going everywhere. And I'm just trying to keep it supported and like... I'm not holding it out. I call it the fish hug, hug a yeah. fish. I yeah. want to the hug a fish movement. No, I've seen your pictures. You got them up nice and tight to your body. You're not holding them way out in front to make them look three times uh, as big. I've, I've dabbled in that more as a joke among me and my friends, yeah. too. But I'm not God, good you, at when it. When you do that, though, you can make them look so big. Yeah, but I'm not good at it either. Like, and I just like the perspective, too, because, like, having had some history with it, like, you know, seeing the photo, like the Polaroids or the developed photos, that's what you used to see these occasional hero shots on. And like, you know, some of these guys, I like, you know, my dad or his buddies or Jimmy here, Jim Bernstein at the shop. You know, you'd go out and they'd go out on these days, and you know, you'd be hooking a lot of big fish and landing several, and maybe taking a picture of one. Right. Like with right. a crappy camera, and right. like, they weren't holding these fish. When you catch heavy fish, the inkling is to hold them close. Right. to support them not be like we're talking 30 to 40 pound fish holding that out dead weight after <laughs> you've been casting for a while it's not I mean it's not hard but like you're all jacked up and like it doesn't like I get it yeah I get it. and you know the, the whole fish picture thing is we just have easier access to cameras these days yeah and then the social media movement you know yeah. is obviously where people are like hey I'm showing off my fish I caught whatever I mean people have been taking fish photos for since cameras oh, started 100% you know what I mean? but, but it's just spiraled out of I see people come down, and and it's almost always younger guys, and and I love how many young people are getting into the sport. But hey, don't take a picture of every fish you catch all right. day, like especially with stripers. If you get a school of fish, hey, guess what? They're pretty much like you catch a school of twenty inches, whatever. Number one, that's the future. So you want to handle them real well, mm -hmm. and don't like. What's the point of taking all these pictures of them? Right. Like. Well, so you have one to post every day in January. I guess so. You really <laughs> a different picture. I guess so. Yeah. I don't get it, man. Some people do it, and, and for whatever reason, people people enjoy doing it. But uh, it's it, you're right. I mean, it's just one of those things. You don't need to take a picture of every yeah. single fish. Maybe and, one or two. Yeah, and I don't want to. I don't. I hate disrespecting people's choices with this too, because sure. Guess what? We're fishing. Fish die. Fish get killed. Like, I'm 100% on board with that. I've murdered plenty of fish in my day. Sure. And um, not, not so much stripers. I've killed very few stripers in my day. So um, you, don't ever, you don't ever keep them, like, yeah, client no, stuff? You no. just practice catch and release all the time? 100%. Uh, my business is 100% catch and release. My personal fishing is 100% catch and release. Cool. Uh, I think the last fish I killed was for my family, like, in the mid-2000s. My grandmother... My grandmother... Um, on my mom's side, fished a lot. Yep. Uh, not fly fishing at all, just uh, bait and, and, and uh, she was using conventional gear because this wasn't like... But she fished to eat them. She oh, she fished to feed her family. Yeah, yeah, my mom had... So it's five kids in her family. Um, my grandfather was an uh, officer in the Navy. Um, so they bounced around quite, quite a bit um, to a few different naval bases there up in California and Virginia and Maryland, and then, and they ended up in uh, Newport, anyways. When he was my grandfather was teaching at the Naval War College, and um, they lived right on Newport Bay. And there's this little, little jetty, uh, not even jetty, a little pier, uh, right nearby their house. And yeah, she would go down there and just catch, you know, catch stripers, catch um, bluefish. Uh, 
She loves. She's a fiend for bluefish. I love bluefish too, and I, I know that's where I get it from. Sure. Most people hate bluefish. Yeah. <laughs> I love smoked bluefish. I don't know what it is, but um, yeah, she would catch all kinds of stuff down. There's Ryan has uh, definitely a uh, greater diversity of fish, and especially eating fish down there. Sure. Uh, accessible from shore. So yeah. Um, yeah, so she will pressure me to keep a fish for her every once in a while, and she'd tell you the truth, like, if it lined up, if it lined up right and I caught the right fish, <laughs> I would, I would probably still kill one for her. Not at this point, because, um, she's, she's getting, she's getting pretty old, um, she's still, she's still doing awesome, but stripers are very, very unhealthy for you, number, mm. the number one thing. And bluefish, they have a special type of fat cell that stores uh, PCBs in particular, yeah. um, and it's nasty. If yeah. you have kids, don't feed them stripers. If, if don't feed elderly people stripers. Um, if you the PCBs have, are the, um, is that from? Are we talking like the plastic content? Um, I'm not familiar with the term. Is uh, it? Is it because they're getting like? Um, no, this is uh, this is oh, the Chesapeake Bay's had a history of, of massive pollution. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like, are they getting plastic in their know, system though? Jeez, you know, what? I don't even know where it initially came from, but no, it's, uh, this 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 chemical is just in, it's saturated into the into Chesapeake Bay. Um, it, it's found all over, and it, it's one of these things like mercury. That, it's like mercury, though. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. similar to it, but in the Chesapeake in particular has a high, very high concentration of it, um, and it seeps into a lot of the different forage in in that environment. Stripers eat it; they have this fat cell that stores it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's present in a lot of fish, but it gets flushed out or filtered out, but it, it bioaccumulates in stripers and bluefish. Interesting. So, especially the bigger, the bigger one you get, the more of it it has in there. If you can go on, um, let's, I think it's on the main dot, the main gov website somewhere. There's a health advisory that was issued on this quite some time ago. Interesting. I've never seen it. I've seen and one for freshwater still, for mercury around here in Maine, but. still pertains to the fish these days. Interesting. Check it out, people. I highly advise against eating striped bass. Um, there's a lot of other good eating fish out here that are far more sustainable at this point. I would love it to come to a point where there were enough fish that I could feel comfortable with a customer keeping one every once in a while for the right situation. Sure. It's, you know, it's fishing. We're not really there right now, which we're going <laughs> to no, talk about in a few no. minutes here. But, yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry, yeah, get distracted. <laughs> that's all right. What's, uh, what, if I was going to book a trip with you, what, are the, what would you say are the best times of year? Oh. I mean, like, because you could go May, you could go May through October, but, like, yeah. what's your favorite season, I guess? Or Well, actually, you know, let's get back to my fishing. <laughs> yeah, what's your fishing? Sure. <laughs> we were that talking about important. my fishing season. It starts with, we only got to Brookies. True, we so did. So, Brookies, um, last year I got lucky and got to, a week after I caught my first Brookie in April, we my, went down to Florida with a good friend of mine and got some tarpon, which was awesome. That's cool. Yep, got my... Fish two days, got got a, a fifty like a fifty pounder the first day and like a ninety pounder the second day. Wow. Um, which in tarpon world, uh, one hundred and twenty pounds is like a <laughs> that's like the twenty inch trout or yeah. like the forty inch striper. Yeah. So I should probably just say it's one hundred twenty pounds, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it wasn't. Well, add them together. I don't think. Add them together to get there. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's interesting with tarpon because cool. they nobody seems to really weigh them or measure them very well. So it's like. <laughs> kind of just like an eyeballing thing i'll tell you i think with tarpon i've categorized it and i again like i've done two days of tarpon fishing but it was awesomely fun awesome guide um adam de bruin at uh, red hook fishing out of uh tavernier or isla Mirada. um 
but there's, I think there's three classes. I think there's small ones, which is like 40 pounds or less. And they call those baby GTs? Yeah, baby tarpon. Yeah. Um, yeah, the little babies. And then I think there's probably like the, like a good fish, like 50 to 100 something pounds. And then there's just these monsters yeah. past it. I, a, I think that should be the three basic terms of, there so you go. I got a good one. Yeah, you got a good one. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, so usually it goes from that right in the, the brookies. Um, maybe I get a spring trip up to the, the mountains or Moosehead. Cool. Catch some some salmon or brookies. I love. I actually like salmon. I like landlocked salmon more than the brook trout. Yeah. Well, they give you a heck of a fight. They, they give you a, a good awesome show. They're right? aerial. I yeah. like how fussy they can be tail nipping. Yeah. Um, and it's an Atlantic salmon. Right. Which it's just. I wish we would just stop calling them landlocks. Just call them Atlantics. Of course, that would create a whole bunch of problems for us fishing for them. But <laughs> sure, that's true. They wouldn't be allowed to then at that point. But it's uh, one it's of the so few cool. states that has them. You know, I was, I was talking about that with Jeff. Well, the Davis. only state that has them native and wild. Right. Wow. So, Even New Hampshire. New Hampshire didn't have any native wild. No, they didn't. This three bodies of water in Maine is where they originated from. Interesting. Sebago, Grand Lake, um, and then, so one or two others. Like, I'm not good. I I think there was three. I know Sebago and Grand Lake. Sebago. And the two big strains, though. Yeah. And the two big ones. I mean, Samo Sebago. That's that's the Latin name that's for, true. for landlocked salmon. So. That's true. Um, All right. So after that, then you start doing your striper stuff. Yep. Get right in the stripers. Um. Again, middle of May. I'll start fishing for them like May 10th if it looks like it's happening. Just yeah. Like water temp is good if I see bait. Yeah. Finding bait early in the season. Good tip for new anglers. Find bait early. Moderate. Try to stay on it. The fish are going to be on it when they get here. So, um, yep, that, and then it's, it's just, it's purely stripers. Um, guiding wise, that's all I guide for. And then, um, currently, uh, the stripers run, again, run until usually the end of September, maybe October. It's harder to guide for them late, further into the yep. fall you go. Sometimes there's good pushes right into November. My personal latest fish on the ocean front was December 5th. Um, which is wow. weird. I don't even know really why I was out there. <laughs> I was painting Maybe the they house. are there. Well, I was painting a house on the coast, and I thought I saw some splashing in the middle of the day. And so, I, uh, at the end of the day, I got it's like three thirty. Got done painting and uh, starting to get dark or whatever. You know, <laughs> go down and a uh, couple casts. Got I thought it was a piece of seaweed at first. It was so lifeless and it was cold out. You know? Yeah, was the striper? Striper, yeah. Yeah, twenty-five okay. or twenty-six inch striper. Yeah. Um, but they run back out of here at some point. They run back south. Well, that, that fish probably wasn't going to go much further. That fish was probably going to set up somewhere, or it was just hopelessly lost and not going to make it. But um, we have plenty of holdover fish. I mean, not plenty. I don't target them at all, but I know places where they consistently hang out in the winter. Cool. Um, and hopefully as things warm up around here, um, we may see some more breeding from, from them again. I mean, the, the, the original range of stripers, there were breeding populations all over the place it wasn't just these two big ones it's just what we whittled it down to right so um so anyways yeah the uh the stripers will run through there i'll start fishing for other stuff on my own usually some point in august um maybe try and make a trip for uh some bonito oh well excuse me commercial tuna fishing starts in june and those seasons the quotas come and go and i'll try to get out with my friends for that as well um, as do you well. guys do you guys keep tuna though? Uh, like, do you well, catch it to keep I, it? Or you I catch fish on a bunch of different boats for tuna. So some of them have a commercial permit, which means you can only keep a fish over seventy three inches, and you have to sell it. Um, 
then there's a whole bunch of regulations in that fishery. It's not it's not like the TV show people. Trust me, most people are <laughs> not making much money at all on this fishery anymore. But I mean, there's money to be made. Don't get don't at all. But it's just this. Like let's say uh, at one point last season the price was around a dollar a pound, not that fifteen to twenty five you see on TV. So, right. anyways, <laughs> um, that starts up, and then we'll try to chase some topwater ones too if everything lines up between work schedules and conditions. The Gulf of Maine has can have some pretty heavy seas out there, some pretty tough conditions. Even on you know the boats I fish on are anywhere from like twenty three feet to like thirty five or thirty six. Yeah. Or 40 um and uh so that'll be off and on through the season and then uh the albies start up in end of august or september maybe some benito in august and the albies tend to dominate in the fall and you go down the cape you go down the cape yeah cape or rhode island or long island or what town do you stay when you go to the cape uh We, um, it depends. It I feel like it's a good story coming here. Oh, we've stayed in some interesting places on the Cape. I will say that. Yeah. My wife's from Sandwich. That's why I ask. Okay. So. I have a good friend from Sandwich. Um, but, uh, we're all, it's always on the south side of the Cape for the Albies. Sure. Um, usually we'll stay in the cheapest, trashiest hotel we can find, which yeah, the Cape man. has many. Yep. I've seen some interesting things. Oh, yeah. Um, the Cape's not all uh, ritzy like they make it out to be. Yeah, and I have uh, a friend of a friend, really cool guy who I've, I've gotten fish with a couple times who, who has, like, a family house. Um, it's, what town is that in? I think it's Pop, Papa Nesset. It's not the, that's not the town. It's, uh, it's the, that's the community. The crafts, like, Bob Craft has, like, a compound in there. Really? <laughs> yeah, like... It's like a super fancy like community. It's really cool. Yeah. It's right by like easy like you can launch the boat there and keep it in the water. Yep. So if we're there for a few days, he's a member at a country club down there that my my wife and her sister used to the, uh, work at in the summers and yeah, that's like mid Cape. I think I think where are we there? I think it's like my not, Cape geography sucks. It's not Falmouth. Like a lot of times we'll a lot of times we'll fish out of Falmouth and sure. we'll stay in Falmouth. Yeah. Um, but we'll go out as far as. Have you stayed in Barnstable before? Yeah, we'll stay in Barnstable, definitely. Um, That's got its rough parts. Some yeah. Parts. You probably find some nice I mean, the whole, all the capes like that. There's just, you know. Yeah. It's just, you know, super wealthy mansions and mansion communities right next to not so wealthy. Yeah. Like, and it's the capes true. had a, t- a tough run of it with the, with the drug problem thing and, yeah. um, you know, the pills and the, yeah. all that. So they have, I know. They've yeah. had, it's been really sad. There's been a lot of people affected by that down there and you see it in, yep. in, in certain respects, but fun I'm, fishing there. I don't, I'm not a big fan of on the ground on the Cape, but <laughs> I love being on the boat and fishing or on foot and fishing. Um, there's some really cool stuff there. And those alleys are just, if you haven't fished false albacore before, they're fun. There's, yep. They are high speed fish. You know, I love the tuna fishing. They just peel you once you yeah, get them on. It's just like the, the, the bluefin tuna that we chase offshore or sometimes very close to shore are are really the most just baddest fish in the sea. They're so amazing. And they get huge. I mean, over 1,000 pounds. Wow. I think the world record's like 1,800 pounds or something like that, 1,500 pounds. Huge. Just massive fish. Um, and so... They're awesome, but they're very unaccessible, expensive to chase, and uh, the big ones you can't target on. It's very specific gear, you know, big, yeah, big 
conventional 130 setup is basically the only thing you can target them or harpoon you know they're monsters sure fighting them with a boat basically so <laughs> but albies the false albacore are the very small inshore cousins of them you know they exhibit the same feeding behaviors and that just high line speed i mean they i think they burst up to 40 something miles an hour or just crazy. under it which is very close to what the, the bigger tuna do yeah so. and they look so cool oh they're beautiful yeah, yeah. They're cool looking fish they're very they're i love their tails the split tail yeah. oh that's where they get that massive speed from and and they're challenging too uh, number one you fight a lot of tough weather down there and crowds um through the whole run of it, I mean, the Cape, Rhode Island, Long Island, and, and the Sound, and all, it's, when they show up, people are chomping at the bit, and it's a short season, it's just that, sometimes it's like four weeks, Yep. I don't know, I haven't been at them for that, as long as Strikers, I think I started chasing them in like 2010, maybe, yeah, that sounds right. Um, That's a cool trip, and I love that, I love that you like, get out and fish a lot too, because there's... I know guides who it's like they just guide every day they can, and they don't even get out ever and fish. I mean, some of them never even catch yeah. a fish all season because they're just constantly guiding. And I, I'm person. My personal thought is, I'm guiding so that I can, you know, make money to like get out there on my own too and feed, yeah. feed my own kind of habit to have with it, and also support family. But at the same time, it's I want to get out there and fish. I mean, that's the whole reason I got into yeah. guiding too in the first place. Really, yeah. I love I, being out there. If I can't fish at all anymore, I'm not. I go. I go get a. I'll go get a desk job again. I'll go work real estate again where I can schedule days off and go fishing. Go fishing, right. right. And that's what I do now, basically. I schedule I schedule it in. Yep. Uh, I love spending, like, me and, uh, me and Liz don't get to fish, fish as much these days with, with our daughter, but, um, you know, we used to fish a ton together. And and um, I've got some great friends that I love fishing with. And, and again, it's not just about catching the fish but it is about catching the fish yeah but also you just getting to spend this time with friends and there's no other place i'd rather spend that time right. sounds like you have a lot of good annual traditions that you do and that's that's right. important yeah i've been tr i've tried to keep some going definitely there was uh, quite a few years uh where i got to go steelhead fishing in new york with my dad yeah um which was awesome we haven't done that again since i had my daughter um and me and liz used to go out there and it was usually I got like two weeks of November where I got to go steelhead fishing. One with my dad and then one with one with my uh, partner. Cool. So it was uh, it was awesome, um, and we hope to get back into that soon too. Yeah, but yeah, it's hard when you have little whittles though. Yeah, and it's cold up there, and I really hate the cold. Yeah, it is cold. <laughs> and it every year really it gets cold. worse. My hands and my feet they just go. Like, yeah, I am such. Uh, we just get softer as we get older. I'm so I'm so soft. I'm like. <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to use the, the choice language I usually would to describe sure. my uh, acclimatization to the cold, but it's terrible. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if people are going to book with you, you know, like ahead of time, like what, what's like, you're like, listen, it's going to be really great at this time of year. Impossible to predict. But I, I mean, I think June is a prime time. Like the weather's usually, it's like gorgeous. Sure. Like, um... Do you ever find any lulls like in August? Like, because you know, freshwater with, fishing can like really turn off sometimes. Season, it's hot. It, every day, every week, every patterns are always shifting and changing. And there's so many variables in the salt water. Like, it's hard for me to describe. And a lot of people want to pick my brain on how I choose where we're going and this stuff. And that's important. But it is hard for me to articulate because a lot of it's a, just a feeling that I've built up over the years. Like, I keep some, I keep some fishing logs. I keep, like, you know, business logs and st stuff. But, like, 
my fishing logs are very loose and inconsistent at best. Um, <laughs> and it's not something I use to like plan my season or refer back. Every sure. once in a while, something will come up a conversation with somebody and I'll be like, hold on, I got a vague memory of, there's something floating around it. I know something happened with this and I'll look back and maybe be able to find it. Be like, oh yeah, I mean, this bait fish shows up, this fly and this, you know, whatever. But that's not the norm for me. It's, it's just getting out, number one, getting after every day of the season because every season is so different. Sure. That just staying on top of it. If I find a school of big fish, I'm going to do everything I can to monitor their movement and know where they are and not let anybody else know where they are. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right. figure out what they're eating at what tide, what time of day, yep. as best I can. Um, there's just, again, so many things, but I do like June is the, my busiest month. Definitely. I, it, it's a great time to be out there both for volumes of fish and opportunities at bigger or trophy fish. Um, it's kind of all there in June yeah. and you usually have a good diversity. of. It's bait. funny though. Everything is all there in June and Maine though, right? It's, it's, so, like, it's the best like, time to fish freshwater, yeah. saltwater. June. I had a day in June. Um, I think it was my first season guiding or maybe my second where I, I, uh, <laughs> I had this idea where I wanted to catch like basically all the, like the accessible sport fish in Maine. So I got up in the morning and early went striper fishing, had a great morning, just hammered stripers, just pretty much schoolies and one keeper at like at 28. That was the regular, that's the regulation. Um, which a 28 inch striper is a lot of fun, especially on the eight weight. That, that one is a little angry. So it fought, you know, and, um, Packed it up, hopped in the car, drove three and a half, yeah, about three and a half hours north. Um, <laughs> hopped on a river, caught a largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, um, a chub. Jeez, a mall. Hooked a sucker, but didn't get it in. Yep. And then was trying, desperately trying to find a pickerel. This is in a friend's backyard. He gets home from work. We hop in his truck, drive another two hours. Hoffin drift boat, catch a brookie, and then proceed to catch a bunch of landlocks. That's awesome. Awesome hatch. Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. It's like you hit almost all the species we have. Uh, yeah, I mean, what did I? I mean, that's a cool thing about Maine. As though. far as the native like so wild cool. fish that you would target, I think it was like I couldn't think of what else there. Well, the pike aren't native. Oh, no, not not. I wasn't going for a pike. I was right. chasing for a right. pickerel. Yeah, pick, yeah, but I'm saying you're you're thinking like oh, I'm no, thinking yeah, about yeah, the species yeah, like yeah. pike aren't native, pike so that wouldn't count. Uh, muskie aren't native, um, so and you know most of the other trouts aren't native. I couldn't think of. Yeah, like browns and rainbows. Sucker, are sucker, but people don't really target suckers. But I was like, eh, mm, if you catch, catch one. sucker, that's cool. I guess technically the blueback trout, but that's a. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. I've never yeah. caught one of them. No, that's a tough <laughs> one to fit into that day. That's for sure. Yeah. So. You, need a, you need a horseshoe for that. Yeah. So. So um, anyways, you know, June's awesome. Ju July can be phenomenal as well. You start to see different patterns emerging. Um, getting at it early starts to become very important. You know, a lot of days in June, like, the fishing's banging all day. Um, in July, where things start to get hotter and the water temp's coming up, you can see some weird stuff. But you can also get some, start to get some really cool sight fishing with pickier fish up in that shallow, bright, bright water. Um, and uh, as the weather gets hotter, that can be tougher on shore. You know, we can have some grueling days. Sometimes we've got to cover some ground. Yep. Um, you know. Like in, by covering ground, you mean you get out, Both you get in it. the car, and then you go to another <laughs> spot. Another spot. We'll cover ground by, we'll cover, 
you know, sometimes that's part of the cool thing with the cars. Sometimes we'll make big moves. We'll fish an area in the morning and like maybe it was awesome for the last three days, but it's not happening today. Yep. And it's a, it's a tough, one of the tougher things out there is knowing when to make the call of making big moves where, you know, I'll say, well, it's just, you know, we've hit it hard for a few hours. My, you know, my, 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 my customers were fishing good. I feel confident in our methods. Um, maybe we caught a couple fish, but we're not getting what we're after. Then, I, you know, maybe I get a lot of intel from, from, from people too. Most of it I don't trust. There's a few people I trust pretty well. Sure. Um, but even them, I don't like, to, I never like chasing reports. Yeah. Unless it's, well, a, it's, unless it's a phone call of like, hey, I'm here right now. This is happening, which I get. And, and we have chased those and come through big time on it too. Yeah. And, um, but I mean, just because you go catch a striper in one spot and then you call me and say, hey, I caught a striper here this morning, doesn't mean that I can go there. Could tomorrow be. morning and still catch oh, a fish absolutely. there. You know what I mean? No, I mean literally like, hey, like I'm tied on a 40 right now. They're feeding right here. Yep. Like, and we're, t- we're 20 minutes away. We'll probably get on yeah. that. Those are good friends to have. Oh, yeah. And it goes both ways. I have a very right. broad network of people that I communicate with, a very tight network of people sure. that, that we actually go back and forth with that stuff. Yeah. And I people, think all fishermen do. Yeah, and those are people that I've built up relationships with over a long time and and fished with a lot and trust nice. very much on both ends, both feeding them intel and and receiving uh, it. But I, so yeah. how, do, how do I get into that group chat? Then? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know, man. It's never, oh, it's almost, it's almost never a group chat. I'm yeah. Very It's got to be a phone call. There's no tracing. With, yeah, and I don't ever, I've seen, okay, I guess so this could transfer into the, uh, the hot topic of hot spotting. Um, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it so bad. I've seen, I've, I've lost places to fish because of it mm-hmm. on the coast here. Access is, is very important. And there's a lot of ways to get like I've fished. I feel like I fished like almost every rock on the coastline. There's ways to get through it all, but there's limited points of access where you get right. Cause of private land. Right. Yeah. And it, it dwindles every year. Mm-hmm. Um, whether things switch over to permits, you know, permitting issues that make it so you can't get there or just get closed entirely. Right. A lot of it has is stuff that has been just granted of by goodwill from property owners that get tired of people leaving trash and all that. Same thing in freshwater, but yeah. it's almost a little more rampant on saltwater and the, the, the access points are less controlled, if you will. The, the launches, the boat launches, those are all well cemented. You're like, you're not going to lose those, but most of those spots are good for access via boat. Terrible for, for accessing shore fishing. Right, so. right. <clears throat> yeah, that's tricky. Yeah, I mean, um, and you have your beaches. Like, people can go to, you can go to any beach and pay to park or whatever and go there, but that's not always the best fishing, you know, beaches. and. Oh, beaches are awesome. No, beaches okay, are great. Okay, I'll take it back then. Beaches are great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, I got sidetracked a little. I can't remember what we were talking. <laughs> well, we were just kind of, we were just talking about the best times of year to fish. And oh, stuff. yeah, yeah. So July starts says. getting hotter anyways. Yeah. Um, August, if there is a lull, like, there's cycling lulls through the whole season. Again, we can't predict it. Like, you're going to catch just weird weather events or or, or just uh, shifts in bait that, that'll, that'll make the fish harder to access. 
it is, you know, sometimes you're going to be fishing from shore and there's going to be a big pile of fish 150 yards out mm-hmm. and they're not coming in. Yeah. And you can't cast 150 yards. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, you know, yeah, it's torture. Sometimes that, that situation happens. It happens on the other side too, which is one thing most people don't realize. There's plenty of days from a boat where the fish are right up on shore and your cast is not long enough to get to them. Right, and you can't get too close you in your boat. You can't get close enough in the boat. Right. It happens both ways. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Freshwater fishing's like that too, though. People think you're in a drift boat and you cast to the bank, it's the best. And then there are other times you're on the bank and you're like, oh, the fish are way out there. And it, it, exa- exactly. It's, the it goes yeah, both it ways. It goes both ways. Yep. And to tell you the truth, the average is really where it's the best. Yep. And that's what I focus on working most of the time. Sure. It's that in-between spot. Yep. Everybody's trying to cast so far. And like, I tell a lot of my people, um, we can get it done with a 30-foot cast most days. Yep. Um, it may not be great success. It may not work out well. Um, but... Like a fifty, a clean fifty foot cast or fifty to sixty foot cast is is great. Yep. If you can pull that off, um, you can do really well. No. Now, do you when you talk to clients ahead of time? You know, you're booking a trip or whatever, and you say, "Hey, listen, you know, have you really done the ocean fishing board?" And they say, "No." Do you try to get them? Do you try to encourage them to go on like practice or get a casting lesson before oh, yeah. they go out? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I've turned I've turned plenty of trips away. Because I don't want to give them a bad experience. And talking to them, I just get this feeling like this, like their casting is not there yet. Yeah. And I've t- I, I, at the same token, I've taken people out who have never cast a fly rod. Um, a couple of them were accidentally. I didn't quite find that out fully till we were on the water. I was like, oh, well, you know, okay. All right, we'll figure this out. <laughs> well, we're going to, yeah, we're still going to, I'm going to be nice to you. Sure. And we're going to have a fun day. Yeah. Right. And I'm gonna pinch this bar up real quick so nobody gets really hooked. All right. All right. <laughs> you know, actually, you know what? Maybe I'm gonna take that fly off for the first few casts, and we'll sure. we'll get it going. Yeah. Um. So it's. <laughs> but I mean that that's a that's a hard process for you too because you don't. It's like playing golf, right? You wouldn't just take you wouldn't just take somebody who's never swung golf cart out a golf club and then go play 18 with them. Right. Especially if you're playing with like. You know, you're playing with really good golfers or something. You know yeah. what I mean? It's 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 you gotta practice something first usually. Yeah, and you know I've had enough trips end up going that kind of way. Yep. Um, not necessarily that extreme, but just maybe they get tired. You know, sometimes yep. throwing these big heavy setups, especially if your technique isn't developed yet and you're really using your strength instead of. Your yeah, technique. some people get frustrated and they just kind of not quit in like in a bad way, but they're just kind of like, all right, this isn't like I need more practice. This isn't. Uh, I don't get today. that. I never let them get. I try to never let them get there, but I just mean actually fatigued. Sure. Like they're just their their arm is like tired. Like physically, they can't. Like I can see they're just flopping. You know, <laughs> like even some like like I have like you know like healthy twenty year old guys like have this happen over the course of two or three hours on they're on an eight hour trip. Right. They wanted to go big. But I've learned tricks to get past that too. You know, I've got some spots where we can basically step on top of some ripping current and just dump line into it, let it pay out 70, 80 feet, strip yeah. it back in, boom. And right. like, I've got some of those spots where we can, we can get banging yeah. on fish. Using Sometimes the, using the current yeah. to work for you instead of having a So we'll forward. like switch into that for like a couple hours. And if their arm starts to feel better, I'll say, okay, you know, let's go try one more spot for a half hour. You let your arm rest up and see what, you know. Cool. I have had a few chips end early from it too, but they knew it was, you know, just got to work on your technique and build up some strength, sure. you know? Sure. But. So what's a, uh, just kind of a last question here about your, your guy business and we'll talk about how people can contact you, but, um, like what's a typical day look like for you? Like what can people expect if they go out for the day? 
So, I mean, I, I, I do, uh, the, our approaches are really diverse, and, and, and again, this is what I talk about a lot with people before the trip, because I'm well-versed in a, a lot, like, basically every way we can get at these fish. Yeah. So, um... But I mean, like, do people have to come with certain gear? Oh, yeah. so, do you have I to, mean, like, so most they have to are, ride yeah. with you or follow you? Or? Well, no, it, it, most days I usually do one or two people. Yeah. Um, that's a manageable group for me, um, both safety-wise and instruction-wise. Sure. I have done groups up to, like, six, which turns into a whole other game. Right. But for the ones and twos, which is the standard trip, um, we're usually going to meet up at, like, 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning. Yep. Um, that meeting spot varies greatly. I, I travel to meet people. Like, if people are staying closer to Portland, I'll meet them up. If the yeah, fishing's good yeah. up there, I'll yeah. meet them up there. Yeah. And we'll, you know, sometimes I'll pick them up at their hotel or we'll, we can meet right at the beach if they have a rental car. Um, a lot of trips start right here at Eldritch Brothers Fly Shop. Um, so we meet up. They have to bring wading gear uh, rain and rain gear. Um, those are the, the, the things that I do not provide. I always have a couple extra rain jackets in the car. They may or may not fit you or work very well, but... Um, it's something. It's better than nothing. It is, right? <laughs> a lot of people forget the rain jackets, yeah. even though I'm... I, I, I basically every time I talk to a customer, I repeat the gear list every single interaction. It seems a little broken record. I know it bugs some of them, but a lot of them forget, and it can it can affect the day heavily. Yeah. Um, even if it's not raining at all, we might be fishing in the surf, and there's waves just crashing over us. You're gonna get soaked and cold fast if you're not really like waterproof all right. the way. So, anyways, meet up with people um, usually around five o'clock. Uh, most people wear waders. You pretty much always in waders. Pretty much always in waders. Yeah. I've, yeah. It's the water. I mean, even in the middle of summer, like if so, if we wait out on a flat, even if it's like eighty-five out, in the middle of the day, the water's probably like sixty or maybe yeah. sixty-two. And when you stand in that for a few hours, you'll have people get cold and have to get out of the water. Yep. Even even with layers and their wading gear on, it, the heat is a challenge because the mornings are generally a little bit cooler. In the 50s or some weird days this year was in the 40s right right through the summer yeah and then um it, the sun comes up and it just starts heating right up so it get you know you can have these swings from 50 to 90 in a day so you're stripping layers off all day but it's tricky when you're not near the car i'm a pack mule sometimes i'll have a big pack and you know you've i'm sure you do the same thing you just end up oh yeah stuff. So all kinds of stuff um every so day anyways, we'll, we'll meet up early um uh the again the waiting rain gear uh, Good set of glasses I always recommend and a hat too. And then I have a cooler full of drinks and snacks. Um, for full day trips, if people want to bring lunches, they just bring their own, throw it in the cooler. I don't, yep. I don't provide food. It's one big difference from you know a saltwater guide to a freshwater guide. It's kind of standard. Saltwater guides don't provide lunch. Yep. Um, and in fact, if you go to the Keys, you bring your guide lunch. Oh, wow. Well, <laughs> for the most like, part. Wow. That's, I've come to find out that's the standard practice yeah. down there. They have um, expectations then. Wow. <laughs> you got you got to take care of your guide down there. Yeah. They work hard for you. So, But anyways, it's... Um, Are you hinting at something You're up here? A change? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even eat lunch during the... Right. I, I stay light on my feet. Either, um, man. I just go. I'll eat like when I get home, usually at like two or three. Sure. Like, I just I, got, I bring granola bars and little snacks. Um... And, and, and cold drinks and um, uh, fishing gear. They can bring their, their rod and reel setups if they're appropriate and they want to. I'll always have good options as well. And I do um, communicate the retrieve direction on the reels as well. So I bring reels that are set up to your natural retrieve direction. That's important to me. Yep. Um, I've had it go the other way with guides before and I think it's 
really nice for me to provide that for you. Sure. Especially if we hook a big fish, you're going to fight it on the reel. So. Yeah. Yeah, you want to be comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, and then we take off. Uh, we There's so many different places and approaches. Like The actual on-the-water part of the day is harder for me to describe because I am going to try to custom tailor it to what you want to do. Yeah. I have some people that are like, hey, I don't give a hoot about catching any schoolies. I just want to go for a trophy fish. Sure. And I prep them up for that day. You need to be casting minimum 50 feet for those guys. Yeah. You know, 80 would be better because they might be at 100. And you're just going to need to get close enough to maybe interest them. Right. So with these guys, it's a whole different set of prep for that trophy kind of gig. Um, and give them fair warning that we may get very skunked on that end of things. And yep. I don't like getting skunked. So at some point, I'm going to say, okay, trophy time's over. We're going to go bang the schoolies. <laughs> <laughs> just unless get they're a really, Unless they're really against that. I will, I will take gladly take a skunk on a day if they genuinely don't care about it and, it, and it's, it's all just conversation and being honest with each other yeah. i get some people sometimes they have weird interactions where like we'll come to a point in the day where i give them like two or three options right we can go here do this we can go there do that or here and do this right. explain to them the differences between those what do you guys want to do and they're like oh well you should really be picking that right and i'm like well yeah and i can if you just tell me to pick one i'll pick but um what do you these so are what do you all, want I'm giving you these good options because right. they're all good options, but the end point is what you want to do. Cool. So it's that's more important than, and you know, and one of the options might require me burning quite a few more gallons of gas and going off this other direction. I don't care. Right. If you're into that and that, you know, because so, sometimes it's like we've already kind of achieved our goal and maybe I'm like, well, we could go try to get a little bit bigger fish, keep doing this technique, or hey, you want to try a floating line and a popper? Let's go like get some top water on, you know, right. and then just totally change the direction of the day. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I get it. Like as a guide, I mean, we, you know, guides obviously work for money, but at the same time, there's a lot of passion behind that too. Like oh, you're not just yeah. doing this just to make money because you want to see people do well oh, and you yeah. want them to have the best day and you, you're going to do everything you can to make sure they have that best day. I've had jobs that were far less physically demanding, far more financially rewarding, um, just easier, uh, just, you know, right. so in all respects, better jobs. Yeah. I would much prefer. But it's this. not intrinsically rewarding. No, to you no there's no much, passion so. at the yeah. end. There's no excitement. Right. Yeah. I can't, no. I don't, you know, I'd have to close a big deal to come home and be like, yeah, this is awesome. But it's pretty easy to have a good day of guiding and be like, yeah, that was great. You know, and right. just, um, you get a lot of those. Things. And make a lot of, like make a lot of friends out of it. And I have a hard time with some of my regular customers trying to maintain like a more, business relationship as opposed to just becoming my friends and some of them have failed miserably they're just my friends right <laughs> like, this could have been a good regular customer i don't like well that's too bad like this is gonna be my like one of my friends right. so it's tricky that's tricky you know because it is a business and it, you do have to make money um i've done weird things i mean i've i've had i, I don't like getting into specific stories because i never want to tell people's story without their being forewarned, but like, you know, I've had people like, uh, had some people that brand new anglers, um, awesome people had a, had a nice day with them, but we were very unsuccessful. We caught fish, but, um, I just thought we were very unsuccessful and I kind of felt like it was, it, it was my, it should have been better than it was. Or something, yeah. I just, right? it kind of felt like it was my inability to, to, convey what needed to happen better to make them more successful with it or, yeah. or 
I don't know. Just what didn't match the. Well, sometimes people's learning styles set. are different than your teaching yeah, style. Yeah, there was just something you know, that doesn't, didn't doesn't flow. click fully to make it all come together. We still had a great time, um, and they're going to do more trips with me too. But you know, they wanted to tip me at the end of the day. I'm like, I refuse. I refuse to take a tip, which is stupid. <laughs> right. Right. And they wanted to give me a tip. They had yep. value out of the day, but I just, I, yeah, I don't know. I yep. just made. I'm like anybody who's a guide knows like. It may, some people may think we make a lot of money at this, and maybe some guides do, but like, it's not really that best. You're not becoming a millionaire job. off of it, especially when it's a seasonal gig like we right. have up here. Right. So it's, it's only a certain amount of days you get on the water, and you're only sure you're not judging a thousand dollars a trip. I mean, yeah. There's so a going rate. Super so. stupid business decision, but yep. you know, I think it. I think they appreciated that rapport and that honesty from me. Yeah. And I wasn't blaming them for the it either. Right. Some guys get real nasty out, out yeah. there. I have no, I have no tolerance for that, um, both as a, as a, as a customer of guides or as a guide. Right. Zero. Like I've never, never had, like. I know exactly what you're saying. And anything I, with a with a customer before. No, I've never had a negative interaction with anybody. And I, and I mean, it's I funny can, you say that thing about tips because I can, I can appreciate that because I can remember one year I was guiding father son in August. Mm-hmm. And the fishing can can just get tough. The temps are high, you know, it's high sun. Yep. And we were searching far and wide for trout and salmon and they ended up catching two fish that day, but they're good anglers. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're they're up here from down south. They're good anglers and I mean I worked really hard to try to get them on fish. They could see that. But for whatever reason I just would not accept their tip that day because I just felt like how they were as anglers, they should have caught more mm-hmm. fish. And it's still fishing at the end of the day. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm hitting all of my regular spots. I'm using using flies that usually work that time of the year. They're presenting it well. The fish just weren't playing a lot that day. But I still didn't take a tip because I just felt like I don't. I feel like it should have been better for them. And I was like, you know, what? I don't want to take a tip from you. Or yeah. Whatever. And so you understand. I take it right to heart. Yeah, you, you know? take it to heart. You do right really to heart. Prideful in it, and it's um, it's tricky. You try. You know, that's actually that, to get distracted again. That reminds me of uh, my personal curse with guiding. Which is uh, a lot of the best anglers I get are, I don't even understand how it works, but the best anglers I get are on like the most challenging con- condition days. Yep. Um, not always, but like sure. a, a lot of like a lot of days I'll have like three days in a row with, 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 with newer anglers or people just switching to salt. And, and they'll kill it. They'll just oh, be yeah. catching we'll fish great, after fish well, after we'll fish. We'll have great days. We won't maybe fully capitalize. We won't maybe catch that trophy fish like if we have uh, like like someone could catch really far. Like hundred foot caster guy that sure. you get on the fourth day when the fishing just tanks, and then you're watching him throw like. So as a guy, you're sitting there and you're watching him throw a great cast, and you're like, "Well, I can't like I could help him a little bit with that, but like you know, right? He's okay. I'll work on his retrieve and his line yeah. management, but then you're like." We'll work through spots, and we'll start talking overall techniques, and we'll have an awesome day. But still, you're just like, God, why, oh, man, that day, like, last week, if I had yep. this guy, we could have caught, like, four 40-inchers, you know, duh. Right. I had a girl last year. I had a girl last year. She'd never fly fish, and she's just casting these big, juicy-looking stonefly patterns, yep. and she's missing, like, these big brookie heads coming out of the water. Fish after fish after fish, and I'm thinking to myself, if I had a guy I had last week who was super proficient doing this, we'd be like, we'd be like giggling like little kids, you know? I mean, it'd be ridiculous. She ended up still catching one. However, she probably could have caught like five of them if she 
had been, you know, someone who's been doing it for a long time yeah, or whatever. Yeah. So I, I totally understand your story there. It's, it's so weird, funny. It's a weird curse. But it's as really long funny. as, you know, again, as long as everybody comes out of it happy and hopefully both sides of the spectrum have gained something, you know, something from the yeah. trip. That's, you know. Well, it's an experience. You know, when you go out with a guide for a day, you're going out to get an experience. It's like going to a baseball game, right? It's yeah. like going yeah. to take a class or something. Like you're going to learn some stuff. You're also going for an experience and. Not every day you go out with a guide, you're going to catch the biggest fish, the most fish. Tons of fish all day long. Yeah. Like, it's the reality of it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You just try to, yeah. You get those days and you just try to keep it fun. Right. All right. So, um, how can people uh, contact you if you're looking to, to book a trip with you? Um, you can get me uh, on my website, um, mainstriperguide.com. One P. One P. I was actually <laughs> thinking of, did I tell you that? No. Nope. I was thinking about purchasing... Um, Main stripper guide, which is you know with two P's, just sure. because it's such a common misspelling or typo. Oh, yep, it happens all the time. I, I, you know, I could get. I, I I didn't check actually if the domain was available. It probably is. Yep. Some people probably buy it now, which right. is good because yep. I thought about it further and was like, well, I might get some weird inquiries out of this oh, yeah. one. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, main striper guide. Okay. Um, um, my Instagram is main striper guide as well. Okay. Um. Um, and I, I love talking with people fishing, so, you know, contact me, um, guiding or whatever, you know, yep. I put some, starting to put some more tying videos out for some of my patterns and, um, and some other people's patterns that I like to use a lot. Yeah. You had a cool little website. I was checking out your videos and stuff and oh, checking out your pictures and all thanks. that. And it, was, it was really cool. So, yeah. Um, we're also for, oh, obviously we don't know we're recording at Eldridge Brothers Fly yep. Shop right yep. now. So another spot people yep. can find you, right? Eldridge Brothers Fly Shop, Cape Natick, Maine. Um, you can get me here. I work here part time. Um, I'm here quite a bit more in the in the off season from guiding, and then when uh, guiding season's going, I'm I'm not around too much. But you know, people run into me at the end of trips and occasionally in here doing a few things. Cool. But you can you can get me through there as well. Um, all right, sounds good. So we'll uh, we're gonna take a little break here, and then we're gonna come back and just talk some. We're gonna talk about the striper population, some current events going on, and sure. all that. So. Sure. Old Oak Outfitters was founded in 2013 and specializes in fishing for stripers and bird hunting. They fish out of a center console boat that is set up specifically for the fly fishermen and spin fishermen who are in pursuit of chasing stripers on the rugged coast of Maine. When the striped bass show up in the month of May. Old Oak Guides are always one of the first boats looking for schools of migrating fish. With over 20 years of fly fishing experience between Saco Bay and Brunswick, they will go to where the fish are feeding and will put anglers in the right spot to be successful. As the season progresses, they change their fishing style to give folks the best chance at catching big fish in their summer homes. This means finding the fish consistently holding in specific type of waters. They are always willing to share their local knowledge of the fishery and make new friends who share the same passions as they do. In the fall, they turn their attention to bird hunting with two well-trained German shorthair pointers, Mabel and Nova. Running the old logging roads with these two dogs will get you excited knowing you have a chance at the king of the north woods, the ruffed grouse. To learn more, call Captain Kevin Stone at 207-749-3714 or find him at oldoakmain.com. If you mention the Maine Fly Fishing Podcast, take 10% off your guided trip. Join Old Oak Outfitters to experience authentic Maine striper fishing and bird hunting. I'm back here with James Brown, a.k.a. Maine Striper Guide. Um, he's going to talk a little bit about some current issues with the striper population along the East Coast and some issues kind of here in Maine and maybe maybe uh, even out of the 
country. We were just kind of talking about Canada stuff too. So if you want to just kind of start uh, talking a little bit, because I don't know a lot about sure. the striper population. I know it's migratory. I don't yeah. know about slot limits in other states, so if you want to talk about some of the stuff, that'd be yep. great. And so, I mean, just to clarify, I'm not a, I'm not a biologist. I'm not a scientist. You know, I just, I have, a, um, I think a good perspective on this to kind of counteract this more strictly scientific side of it. Whereas I just have a, you know, I've lived on this coast most of my life and been passionate about these fish. Um, and through my own fishing and my own guiding and um, working at the fly shop, um, I've come to know a lot of people who fish it. And so I, I, I feel like I get a broader perspective than what I see myself, but I get a lot of that um, anecdotal kind of evidence coming through, which again, you know, this is not scientific stuff that I see, but no, but you season after season, you learn. To see some obvious stuff in nature. For sure. So, um, and I try to keep right up on the scientific end of it to understand that as well as I can. But um, the striper fishery on the East Coast, which is the original native range of stripers, again, they're in, they've been stocked in fresh water in a lot of places. It's, one thing about this fish is they, they can live in fresh water just fine. It basically has zero effect on them. So they're just taking regular striper eggs and planting them, like you were telling me, like in Arizona and Tennessee. Yeah, I don't think they plant by. Like I don't think they plant by by egg or eyed egg. I think they plant the fish themselves. Fish, yeah, they I stock they, the fish. I see. I, I'm not sure exactly of the details of the freshwater yeah. striper. Now, do strippers do strippers need freshwater to spawn in though? They need a very specific mixture of fresh and salt water. So it's going to be a brackish type of water, and it's a specific salinity content that they need. For a certain period of time, too, I want to say it's a couple days. Yep. Um, Are they a fall or a spring uh, spawner? They're uh, a spring spawner. Yep. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's hard to keep track. I know. Yeah, All the freshwater fish. Rainbows in the spring, books in the one. fall. Oh, well. <laughs> spring spawner. Spring spawner. They, um, so they spawn in the spring. They get real hungry after that, and they take off out. Again, this is up in back water kind of stuff and these brackish mixtures up in river systems and the Chesapeake being the major one, the Hudson being the secondary one um, for the United States. Um, and they, they do have a, a wildly sustaining population on the west coast now as well, which has become really popular and they, from what I understand they have some, some pretty quality fish and yeah. um, a few of my customers have fished out there and liked it. It's different, it's very different though from, what I, from, yeah. from, from our do, do they mostly the East Coast ones? Do they mostly spawn down in like the the, the Mid Atlantic section of the U.S. or, or yeah, do we even get them up the, here the that spawn? The, the Chesapeake. That's the bulk of it. The Hudson, the secondary. There are limited, smaller little pockets of it. I mean, I have one at my house. Right. <laughs> they fish holdover. Yep. I don't know the how much they breed or if they have any successful breed. The fish that we see in there are pretty much all just breeding size fish. But there may be smaller ones. We're just not. I don't. I don't fish it either because I leave them alone. Sure. Yeah. I know some other it guys used. who fish it, and I yeah. see them, so I know they're there. But I, yeah. I want them to breed, so I just leave them alone. Because that you know while so those are what we would call holdover fish up here. Because they, instead of traveling back south to the Chesapeake um, in the fall, they just cut into this river and found this this water that's going to maintain a decent enough temperature through the through the winter, and then yeah. they kind of like hibernate the holdover ones. They'll still eat, and but they get you know their metabolism is slowed way down because of the water temp, and the yeah. availability of, of uh, forage for them is, is substantially lower than 
than during the rest of the year. So they just kind of sit there and wait till the spring. and then Yeah, they don't burn a lot of energy, so they don't yeah. need a lot of food. Yeah. I mean, there's places wait. where they can, you know. There's a big, big, actually, there's a, uh, in a city south of us, there's a, there's a pretty substantial holdover population of massive breeding fish. And, and I've seen videos of them feeding underwater right through the winter. But, you know, there's some industrial outflows that bump up the temperature and draw in bait fish and these kind of sure. man-made things that allow it to be a little better. There, traditionally, there were breeding populations basically through the whole range of these fish from the Carolinas up to Maine. Yep. Um, and into Canada. We can talk about the resurgence of the Canadian population in a little bit, but... I uh, I just wanted to ask you another question too about stripers because I, I saw this stat the other day that like, and I, I may be wrong, I, I think I read this way, but like something over 100,000 stripers were harvested in Maine last year and then like in like New Jersey it was like over 5 million or something. So Traditionally, the Maine harvest accounts for, I want to say it's a uh, half percent of right. the total harvest the total. of stripers on the East yeah. Coast. Yeah. So, so what do you think the current population is? I guess is my question. Between there 1%, you know what I mean? Um, so our, uh, just a quick touch on that Maine's impact on the fishery overall is very minimal right. as far as terms of what's caught and kept because we are at the northern range of that and you know the northern parts of our state don't really get these fish so much I think they used to have a lot more action you know these days the Kennebec is kind of like the north end of good striper fishing yeah. and the Kennebec system is phenomenal and through the mid coast there you definitely have some awesome water but then it starts to really thin out, and and once you get real downies proper there, yep. Um, which for people that aren't from Maine or New England, down east is a confusing term. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at where it is on the map, down east would be the the, the far eastern half of, of the state. Right. And and uh, as you get towards Canada, on the coast, which is not the the down part of the state because it's the northern half of the state. Right. The term comes from from sailing downwind mm -hmm. to the east. Yep. If anybody's wondering. Yeah. But um, <laughs> I learned something today. The uh, so it starts to thin out up there, and then the and then Canada has its own population, which has really started to just boom again recently. Which, uh, uh, I, from what I understand, there hasn't been a lot of scientific uh, research on it, but a lot of anglers and and, and fisheries managers up there are freaking right out because the impact of stripers on the Atlantic salmon fishery up there is is a big deal. Right. The Atlantic salmon fishery is their bread and butter as far as sports fishing goes. And they're trying to hold on to that Atlantic salmon yeah, fishery. Yeah, it's really the last... The and last stripers thing. are a threat to them. Oh, yeah, because, I mean, a, a big school of hungry stripers, even small ones, can set up on those those salmon small fry or uh, just hammer them. Oh, yeah. It could be devastating. So yeah. I know, from what I understand, they've started to open up regulations on them wildly, like... I think the tribal folks up there can basically just keep as many as they want. Yeah. I think they're starting to net them as well, which netting is always a very scary prospect for a fragile fishery because that can go a lot of ways real fast. Yep. And I don't know if I, I, I heard I heard rumor of that, but I, 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 I no idea if that's true see, or not. See, I've been misunderstood all these years because I thought, um, and you, you and I talked about this a little while ago during the break, and we were just talking about, I've always thought the migration of East Coast fish was also going all the way to Canada, and then I was thinking, oh man, well Canada's got all these these regs now because they're worried about them hurting the salmon population. So yeah. I was thinking, oh man, they're they're away from all. But you explained to me that there's it's basically a different population. Totally now. different population. Of fish. Gotcha. And there, I'm sh I'm sure there's a small amount of overlap there, but um, from everything I understand, that's its own population of fish that's always existed too. Yep. That that population of stripers up up uh, in Canada has 
been there for a long time. It just was massively declined and beat up for quite some, to the point where it was almost non-existent. Yep. But those fish were still there. And then for whatever reason, something clicked. I think it was 10, 15 years ago maybe where it started happen a little bit and then in the last seven or eight years it, it, it's the population the number of fish up there is was it do you think it was because of harvesting practices or de- I, don't, I, don't know, or? I don't know the history of, of what happened up there yeah why, why the striper population went down obviously every if you look at any fishery out there as a whole it's all gone just it's all slowly going down right so um you know, the Atlantic salmon population up there. You, you, again, it's weird when you see things like this where those, those fish belong there, the stripers. They were there, they were been there for ages. But when, when the salmon fishery is so fragile and the people depend on it so much that you see it start, the stripers start to come back and people vilify them, whereas in reality, those fish should be able to balance themselves out. They obviously did in the past. Right. And the salmon population back in the day was far greater than it is now, so it only makes sense that there could be some equilibrium, but there's probably some environmental factor that won't allow that to happen, or it takes too long to balance out, and, you know, in the meantime, the salmon can be destroyed, which yep. would be terrible. I mean, I love stripers, but don't get me wrong, like, I don't, uh, I've never gone up there for the Atlantics, but I would love to. It's right at the top of my list. You don't want to rob Peter to pay Paul, right? Yeah, it doesn't make That's any sense, and saying. there's been such, so many long-going efforts, uh, long-ongoing efforts to, to keep the Atlantic salmon populations thriving up there, or at least sustainable, and then um, to, to, to kind of repopulate some of the ones in the U.S. In the, in the Northeast, which those efforts have all wildly failed. Yep. And, and, and have received a lot of resources to get there. And they tried, but, I mean, they're just... Yeah, I mean, they're starting to knock down some dams in Maine. We've talked... I talked to Greg Labonte about sure, this a little yeah, bit yeah, and stuff, yeah. but That's it's cool. not coming back in the numbers that... Yeah, and then, you know, even, even if you do manage to repopulate one of these things, you get this pseudo-man-made fishery. Yeah, it's, it, it would be Atlantic salmon in there, and it would be in their, you know, original range, and, and if you could get them to sustain wildly, that'd be cool, but you're still, like... You're dealing with rivers that have... The salmon have been gone from them for a hundred something years in a lot of cases, and so many things have changed. I don't know. It's uh, I'm it's not, not a huge fan of stocking efforts. So no, no. And <laughs> Repopulation is one thing, but again, still with limited resources and fisheries management, I would I would continue to rather. Uh, I I would almost like to see a greater separation between quick put and take stocked fisheries and well well managed wild fisheries whether those wild fisheries put out what people want them to do or were just sustainable i i could care less yeah uh, i, I guess we're you. not after quant- you know when you're not after quantity of fish in your fishing experience well, you want you want something sustainable you're going to be around yeah, for yeah you want time. sustainable quality fish but not everybody does. That's the other problem, right? Not everybody right? does, yeah. and there's so many great yeah. places for stocking and it does so many, it does do good things in, in such some limited places that it can bring a lot of people into things, but it can teach bad, bad practices too. Yeah. It's tricky. It's that's, really been a, that's been a common theme on my podcast. So we've been talking about wanting to see, you know, states or federal government, whoever, just put put more money, not in the stocking practices, but put into habitat restoration, right? And yeah. Getting things kind of to the way they were so those fish can wildly reproduce. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's the same thing with stripers. So to get back to them, you know, with, with them, managing their bait is, is one of the crucial things. Uh, obviously, they don't have enough 
to eat, their population's not going to do well. So managing their, their bait sources <clears throat> along with the harvest is the two, the two major things. You know, we've got to keep the ocean clean, but it's different than managing fresh water. Yeah. And there's we, definitely a lot, there's plenty of issues with that still. You know, Portsmouth, New Hampshire has, they're rebuilding, they've been rebuilding it for a couple of years, but their wastewater treatment facility, which is on Pierce Island, right in smack dab in the middle of Skatica River, one of, was rated one of the 10th dirtiest treatment facilities in the country. Yep. Like, it was spewing waste. I mean, you could go drive by it and just, it smelled like, like a porta potty, like, and you could see it in the river. I mean, <laughs> and that's just in New Hampshire. I mean, other states can have obviously similar things, and definitely. But I mean, I mean, you, you, you look, you come up here, and you know, New Hampshire or Maine, or there's some urbanish areas or whatever. But it's pretty, you know, it's a pretty rural place, and our coastline's beautiful. And you wouldn't, you look at it and think it's pristine. I mean, there's plenty of development on not Mouth of Piscataqua, yeah. but like it's still beautiful. And then you just like look at like. Floating down the river. Well, I mean, listen, I've been to the wastewater <laughs> treatment plant in Portland. I went on a field trip there when I was yeah. younger. And, like, yeah, man, at the end of the day, all of your waste is still getting pushed out in the ocean. I mean, yes, they and, – and some facilities are better than others, right? Like yeah. the one in Portland might be better than the one in Portsmouth. But they're treating your solids, and then they're taking those away. But they're also – they're tre- sorry, they're treating the chemicals, treating your urine, right, with chlorine and other chemicals. Yeah. And that's getting washed out. And then your solids are getting, from what I remember, they were being taken in trucks after and then taken somewhere up north and then burned or something. Uh, so they I weren't getting so much in there. It depends on the facility, I guess. Every state's different, yeah, though, right? Yeah, there's a bunch of different... Right. Yeah. So, some, like you said, they might be they might be just pushing that waste right onto the ocean. Well, they were committing all... Good. They were had all kinds of fines and penalties for what they were doing. The EPA was all over them. Yeah. But it just keeps going on. Right. For ages before it gets better, yeah. before it gets fixed. But again, this I don't think that kind of... Uh, I think other than in the Chesapeake or the Hudson specifically, where managing the quality of those waters, because these are their primary breeding waters, I think that's huge. Like, that's massively important. But, uh, and obviously keeping the water up down the East Coast is important, but to the, in terms of managing this fishery, I think the, the, the primary things are managing the bait, which has been widely abused. Uh, first and foremost, the, the uh, menhaden, also known as pogies or... Uh, bunker um that's a hugely important fish to the ocean in many respects but also a primary food source for, for stripers yeah and they've had all that fish has had all kinds of problems you, if you i'm not going to get too into that but just look up it's like a around limit. state regulations for them though it's mostly just virginia that's, that's just that's just continue to destroy it. it was it was in a lot of places i think there were 16 men hating processing facilities up and down the east coast at the heyday of it now there's one, I, I want to say, which is in Virginia, it's uh, it's all harvested. Pri- the, the, the the pillaging of that fish was done to create the omega-3 fish oils. Right. And the health attributes of those could be argued all day. Sure. But the impact that that industry has had on Menhaden and consequently several other fisheries can't be argued. It's very readily apparent. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> Something needs to change with that right away. That company has some very good lobbyists in, in Washington that have allowed them to continue continue, just pummeling that species into the ground. Yep. It's that constant just, you know, greed of the dollar yeah. over doing the right thing for Yeah, and Menhaden not only are the huge uh, food source, but they filter, I, I want to say it's like three gallons of water a minute that an adult Menhaden can filter, essentially. Wow. So they clean the they water clean the ocean right too. Wow. And they, when, they con- when you get good 
volume of them. I mean, there's just these massive schools of them, yep. which creates phenomenal fishing. But um, I feel like I feel like just to kind of talk about the the East Coast migrations, like I feel like you have a few states who are like, listen, this is the right thing to do. We're on board with it. Why can't other states get on board? And then, and then we, I, you know, some people are like, well, why isn't this like all federally regulated then? You right, know? so the states never agree. The, the ASNFC, the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Council, manages this fishery. They are comprised of, uh, what is it? How do they break it up? It's like biologists, uh, fisheries, um, Commercial fishing, you know, active yeah. anglers, guides, yeah. um, yeah, anglers, and then um, and uh, politician. I can't remember how they spread it out, but you got representation from from all from all the states on this this run through this this process. But they never agree. I mean, the la- the last round of meetings a few years ago, they did agree to one fish at twenty eight inches, which I thought was a terrible idea. Mm-hmm. A lot of us did. They, they pushed it along the lines of, uh, was it 2011, had a big breed, had a, a good breed. The breeding's kind of cyclical. You can look at maybe uh, a good breed every five to eight or ten years, maybe, and then fluctuating smaller year of youngs in between. And so 2011 had a huge YOY, the year of young. A um, bunch of fish were recruited that year. They... Um, saw this happening, they saw the, the, the threshold of breeding size bass declining and decided to go forward with this to protect that 2011 class. Absolutely, great idea, except they did um, one at 28 when those fish were like 24 inches on average. Interesting. And they said they would examine it in three years, but they didn't, it took five or six. <laughs> And guess what happened during that time? Those fish got into keeping size class, and they got annihilated. Yep. So now our 2011 class, which was kind of looking like one of our last good hopes to get a really robust breeding population. The idea you take that class of fish and you protect them till they're at breeding age. Or ideally, you, you protect that class of fish right through breeding age. Yep. Until you have recruited multiple chain of healthy year of young. You know, you want to look at the pipeline of what's coming out, not just what's there. And so I think there's a lot of short-sightedness. There's a lot of weird pressures that come into the managing the fishery where party boats, I don't want to single out commercial fishermen. A lot of states, like Maine, does not have a commercial striped bass fishery. Mm-hmm. Other states like Massachusetts do. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people try to push all the blame on these guys. It's not necessarily the case. The recreational catch is more like 75% of the overall catch. So no matter how you cut it, the commercial guys aren't killing as many as the rest. Yeah. Now the the the, the party boats get counted as as recreational. And party boats these are these are boats with a lot of people on them. The charters. Yeah, they're charter boats with a lot of people on them. Yeah. And the problem with them is if you have a good party boat captain, he's gonna find a school of big breeding sized trophyish fish to put his people on. Yep. Good for him. He's doing. His job right in the respect of putting his customers on them, but they kill them all. <laughs> right. They kill tons of them, so they can pull up on a school of these fish and just—I mean, say there's 50 breeders in one of these schools, they just hammer them. Yep. So they, you know, pull 30 fish, you get 30 guys, get 30 fish. Right, and that's just the Tuesday. <laughs> that's Tuesday, right? So um, that aspect of it, I think that needs some 
And then there's people illegally taking them. I know that happens all the time, like in Cape Cod. Oh, um, there's tons of poaching, but so much poaching. I think that the poaching. It's probably not a huge part of it, but well, it's got it's terrible, and it's got to contribute. It could be very negative. You don't know with poaching. That's you only know what you get caught with poaching, and and the thing, I think there's a lot more subtle poaching among recreational anglers, shore anglers and boat anglers. You see, I see it all the time. I've had many disputes. I've called the wardens many times. Um, people just breaking the rules, whether they know it or not. Yep. Or some of them, it's just a very deep-seated cultural difference that it's hard to work around. Um, but there's a lot of poaching. Yep. There's a lot of poaching. And so I think that the numbers, the allowable catch numbers and the, the, the regulations on what you can keep have been short-sighted and not fully accounting for the extent of how bad that stuff could be or just for how fragile the fishery is. So a little history, the fishery was basically collapsed in the 80s, um, slowly started to come back. You think that's because the slot limits were, were not managed well? I think it's because everybody stopped fishing for them for the most part. Interesting. Is why it started to creep back because it was just like done. Yep. There were bluefish everywhere. People fish with bluefish all the time. But, yep. And then it started, uh, I think, yeah, there were some management moves, and the feds came in and took over. Um, and they did exactly what I just outlined during that time. They took a big year class of good-sized fish, and they just kept bumping the, 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 the size limit up so that those fish could never be kept. So it was like when those fish got to 32 inches, they made it 34. When they got to 33, they were doing it ahead of time, so they were smart. They just kept bu- they bumped it up to 36. I think it was. I think it stopped at thirty six and sat there for several years. Yep. And then all of a sudden it was like boom. There's big bass everywhere. Yeah, it's just great fishing, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's catching up. It's catching small up. Ones for such a long time that all of a sudden sure. you had not only these big fish, but you had like a lot of good size, like the high range schoolies, the twenty eight to thirty twos, which are super fun. Right. And a schoolie's a tough term too because you're going to hear all kinds of different things. For me, under thirty inches is basically a schoolie. Yeah. And these days, I call it, if it's over 28, it's a keeper. Yeah, that's what it says. Keeper, keeper. Get, it's all about the keepers. It's a keeper. It's a keeper size. Yeah. I know. I've, that's all I've known since I've been following, so, you know, striper fishing. But so, so at the end of the day, why don't we, why don't we go back and do what we did in the 90s? I don't I mean, know. What's the deal? I cannot understand why we don't. <laughs> is it because, is it because the states can't the agree? The states can't agree on it. They yeah. did agree on the one at 28, but they didn't come back in time to bump it. And 2011 class got all beat up. And now this year, they've been talking about a slot limit that, I, 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 don't quote me on this, I, I think they were saying 26 to 32 or something like that. Yeah. It was in a size range that does not make sense to me. Right. Because it's, it's, it's fish that are just, that are below breeding age or just before breed, or breeding age or just getting active breeding. Yep. It's putting those fish right there. I mean, if it's under, like, fish start actually breeding at, like, 33 to 35. It varies, but, you know, 32, something in there. Just over a little over 30, they can start. um, They get primed and have a lot more eggs once they reach the upper 30s into 40s. Once they reach upper 40s, they're actually, they're getting old, so they start to decline. And the health of their eggs may not be as good either. So So, so if you could have it your way, would you set the slot limit, like, 48? if (laughs) If I could set the regulations today, it would be 50. Yeah. You can keep a fish over 50, because guess what? That's a trophy fish. Right. Like, we're in this place, too, where trophy fish are over 40 inches. They right. should really be 50 inches. They should be. Because the, 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 physically, they have no problem for a bass to get there if yeah. they could stay alive long enough. Um, that's an old bass, but it's big, too, and it's cool. Um, but, you know, 
ideally, I, yeah, I'd say one over 50, or, or just a straight moratorium for several years. Yeah. And the thing is, it's got to be a while. I, like, every, well, why don't they raise it? Why don't they, they raise it? pressure from people that want to harvest fish. And, gotcha. and the, uh, as it goes the same way in freshwater. I'm sure you see this. The meat crowd, they're good on them because they, they show up. They, they, they push more for what they want. They, they seems to be more of them. I mean, obviously, fishing comes from a background of catching food. It wasn't just a sport thing. But there's a lot out there these days to show the economic impacts of, of well-managed sport fisheries as opposed to the slow decline of harvest fisheries. Right. And people got to eat. Don't get me wrong. Well, isn't there, isn't there the other end of the spectrum where if you don't take fish out at all, now there's too many fish competing for too little forage? I mean, you gotta have a you gotta have a fine fine balance. In certain situations, absolutely. I think with the striper fishery, no, we just need as many stripers as we could possibly have in the water. Uh, The threshold for stripers to be around is a lot higher than I think. You know, you read some of the old history stuff. Like growing up here in York, York's one of the oldest towns in the country. Way goes way back, and like you literally can read a story in one of the like old town like manuscript things. Like the historical society has tons of stuff down there. Like these stories of like, yeah, we were trying to cross the York River. And we couldn't get our oars in the water because of all so, the bass. <laughs> like, we tried to just push along the bass. That's insane. Know? These kind of crazy things. Like, yeah. And, like, obviously we're never going to get back to that. But, yeah. like, we should be able to do better than we're doing right now. And it's frustrating for me having seen it come back. And things got really good, at, like, when I was in high school. Which is stupid for me because I wasn't fishing that much then. But right. Like, saw my, you didn't know that you were in the good old days, kind of. Yeah, it wasn't to the good old days, but like, you know, there was a lot of big fish to catch. People were just going out targeting 40 inches all day and having good success. And there are 30 inches everywhere. And, you know, the 20 inch schoolies were like, well, it's just. They're nothing. Yeah, and I still, you know, a lot of it. I personally feel that way. I don't even want to mess with little fish. I just want them to be healthy and happy. Yep. And yep. get till they're bigger. Some grow. Let them breed for a few years and then start playing with them. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Long-term health of the fishery is very important to me. So so what do you think, like, we have our dream scenario, right? Yeah. But what do you think is a realistic kind of outcome of, because I know right now they're having, they've been having these meetings about the yeah. slot limits, like, this is currently happening as of February 2020 right now, right? It's like, yeah, no, it's, I, 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 I suck because I haven't been able to, my wife travels a lot for work and I, I responsibilities to my daughter and I haven't been able to get to the meetings yeah but at the same token I I personally feel I've I've become negative about it because of what I've seen and because I continue to see the inability to to really examine the history of what happened with it and just do the same basically the same thing and just err on the side of caution right like instead of erring on the side of harvest err on the side of caution it just it's so simple and you know, one thing I, I always propose is a tag system like they have with hunting. You look at deer populations, just, they're so well managed. If anything, the, anything, the, the, the downside of deer populations is overpopulations. Mm-hmm. And guess what? It's usually pretty quick and easy to solve. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I think, you know, it's, it, like you said, well, what if we overpopulated the bass? All right, let's open up the regs. If we're actually having overpopulation problems, by all means, let's kill them. Like, it just... <laughs> You need to have a fine balance is what you need. It's a balance. It's always a balance. But right now we're teetering on a massive decline where it looks like, like last year you heard a lot of complaints of people having a tough time fishing. If you knew, if you had an open mind and were paying attention, like the last five years have actually been awesome fishing. You have to work at it. Don't get me wrong. It's not like the heyday where there's just fish everywhere. Right. But if you put your time in, like we had pogies again for five years and 
I had days where I hooked 10, 40 to 50 inch bass on the fly rod from shore. Right. On po- right. Know, working the pogey scene. Yeah. And like, I, that's just as good as it was back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Sure. Granted, you, you know, getting after it, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're not just, you're not just, uh, just a casual, fly like, hop out for a day, but, you know, it's there. Yep. And I'd like to see that preserve. It, this year was super scary because a lot of people have gotten back into it over the last five years, I would say. Yep. Uh, um, there was a big decline from about 2004 or 5-ish through 2011. Or There was one another good breeding year, I think 2005, so those lingered for a little while. But it's been teetering for quite a few years now, and a lot of people have been really discouraged. But people hit it hard last year, and I saw a lot of big breeders get killed last year. Yep. Which is, I, I, was, I was having, I remember one day, just this, just this epiphany, like, this, wow, this might be, like, it. And that's this just might in not Maine. be back this like next year. Like, yeah. like that's just in Maine too. I mean, that's just my one little. That's spot. yeah. That's just a. But you know, but it wasn't just in Maine. I talked to a lot of anglers up and down the coast. That happened. In a, like New Jersey gets a massive run of that, and it's murder town. Yeah, I got a lot of great friends from Jersey. You know, people talk smack on Jersey, but well, no, I mean the number. <laughs> the number I read last year was it was like five over five million stripers harvest in New Jersey versus like a hundred thousand in Maine. Obviously yeah. there's more people there, so you're gonna have more people fishing and more harvesting, but I mean, that's a really big number. They're I mean, easier to target there in a lot of respects. It's a it's a shorter season for them. They it, like there a lot of that happens in the spring part of the run. Yeah. Where the weather's pretty reasonable and these fish are just a little offshore or right onshore and they're super hungry. They're congregated in mass, even the breeders they're just less cautious. Yeah. You know, when they settle into their summer haunts, they can be real spooky. <laughs> if you're fishing them in a foot of water, they're real spooky. If you catch them cruising the beach in the spring, looking like on, on a pile of pogies, they are just hammering food. So, you know, it's... There's a difference. There's a little difference in... in yeah. yeah. But, yeah, there. I just... We gotta, we gotta see more conservation. I want these fish around for my daughter if she wants to fish them i want them to be there sure um, oh it's one of those things where it's scary because it, it literally within our lifetime could be one of those situations where we had a chance to control it and then we yeah. didn't and now it, we're all gonna be looking around and be like mm, told you so and i keep you know? hearing people say things like oh maybe we should start stocking it's like oh my god don't do that no like just manage what's there appropriately before you start tankering yeah. Like, please, like, yeah. a wild bass, unless it has a bizarre genetic defect, they have perfectly straight, clean lines, all seven of them, just perfect. But it's, like, the the hybrid ones are not even just the, some of the hatchery reared ones get this weird, looks like that digital camo where the stripes are all misaligned. Yeah. Which is kind of cool looking, I guess, but yeah. it's not, like, it's, it's not that perfect striper. It's not know? authentic. Yeah, it's not the real thing. Cool. <laughs> Well, I mean, so, I mean, it just sounds like the, the, the people who, the people who feel like they know what the right thing is, it just seems like there's not enough of those people. Like the voice is too small or something, right? Yeah. And that's trying to grow. Like people, like there was this meeting here, uh, last week or whatever about the slot limit stuff. And what is it? Like every state right now is kind of getting their, their public say and they're going to put that all together. So there's a court, when the ASMFC does their meetings, it's basically, yeah, it's a course of meetings that run through the different states yep. and it's their public meetings. So And they'll put all that together there. Well, I don't know. That's part of the problem. I think, I think the ASMFC is very poorly managed yeah. and I think that some of the more powerful people on it, their motivations are more towards keeping 
people harvesting than long-term healthy management of, of it as a sport. So there's no, like, deliberation, like, you know, hey, the Maine people are seeing this, and hey, the Connecticut people are seeing this. And Well, all the, the, all, all the harvest data and all the breeding data is all compiled together and all examined through the initial part of this process before they start going to the public side of the process. So it's a public meeting, but it's just, it's, I mean, it's the, the minutes are available or whatever from, from their uh, initial meeting. It's usually like in the, I think it was last winter where they like got together and started to figure out like, okay, here's the data and here's, uh, you know, what we're hearing a little bit from people. Let's start to get a rough idea of where we're going to go with it and we'll bring it to the people and hear their feedback and then um, go from there. But it just never... Yeah, the the the, and I don't want to diss on any any people that are more on the harvest side of it. I don't know what their motivations are, and they may be very sound for why they need to catch that fish or, or whatever. But okay. long term, it, like what we're doing right now is not sustainable. At no, all. yeah, not at all. we've proven it, and we're seeing everybody knows it. Like the only like I get accused of like promoting. Oh, you keep saying the fishing's great and it sucks. This is awful. Like I get people sending me nasty messages like, "Wow, you're li- you're full of it. You're lying. The fishing's." T-. And I'm like, "No, this is what I'm getting into every day. I know that's just what I'm getting into, and some other guys over here. But you know, like the fishery as a whole is not good. I'm the first one to say that. Right. <laughs> I mean, what I would like to see actually is a tag system where you just and I want it expensive, like hundred bucks for a fish chat, right? And you're allowed to keep one trophy fish, say, yeah, see, maybe over, like, 48. And, like, that puts good money back into the system. Yeah. we got to see better enforcement. Right. I'm not going to get into the specifics of it because I, I, I don't want to encourage, well, encourage people in southern Maine to do bad things on the water. Our DMR officers that enforce this stuff up here work their butts off. They have a tough job. They're understaffed and underfunded and there's a lot of nooks and crannies and several different fisheries for these guys to manage including the lobster fishery which is huge in maine uh the tuna fishery the ground fisheries cod haddock halibut um so they're overwhelmed they're completely overwhelmed so for them to be daily enforcing random wreck guys on shore is like i don't know how i see them do it anyways on a limited scale, but like we need more enforcement because the amount of stuff we see on the water is just wild. Yeah. Uh, people just breaking every rule they can. Yeah. So I hear a lot of, a lot of stories and you know, I don't see as much on the freshwater side. However, um, I still do see it on the freshwater side. I mean, I just, yeah. I don't get why people can't just, just follow the rules and leave some, you know, for the rest of the world to have. And yeah. I don't know. It's it's tricky though because you can again you can like you can enact all the laws all the management laws you want and if you don't have the enforcement to hold people accountable people are it's a sad state of affairs but there's just a lot of dishonest people in this country. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Uh, it's true. It's but, sad, but it's the it's the truth where we're at. I so. wish, yeah, I wish people had to do the right thing. Yeah, it's not a victimless crime either. It's a it's a it's a public resource and we all choose to use it in different ways, but people. Failing to follow the rules and causing harm on the resource, it's not cool. Yeah. You know? yeah. I, I hate to see it. There's your PSA. There we go. Go do the right thing. It has nothing to <laughs> do with money. It has nothing to do with keeping fish. Just do what you know is right and and let's let the world be a better place because of it. So. Yeah. 
But All don't, right. ju- don't judge either. Don't judge people before it. Try no. to educate them. Yeah. I mean, I still, I, I kill tuna. I feel bad about it. I do it, though. Yep. It's, you know, just, everybody's yeah. got their different things. Just try to educate them on, on what might help, you know? Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, uh, we'll finish there, and um, thanks for coming on the show, James. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Good time. Yeah. You. Uh, so if you look, if you want to find James, you can find him at mainstriperguide.com. Or on Instagram at Main Striper Guide. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Main Fly Fishing Podcast. 